VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, April the 14th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. Uh, David Williams is producing this. Come on with an edition of Open Line. We're looking forward to speaking with you today on a topic of your choosing. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Oh, yeah, throw a 709 in front of that. Toll free elsewhere is one 888 which is 8626. Well, as you heard Brian Madora mention, a bit of a gray overcast day here. Looking pretty good heading into Sunday, and next week looks pretty positive, a bit more spring-like. So here we go. I know for curling fans, everyone's well aware of the importance of having the hammer. But when they determine who gets the hammer in the first end, that really does go a long way to tell the tale in some of these really close, uh, tight matchups, like last night with Team Guju playing Team Botcher, who, of course, were based in Calgary, Alberta. So just get a load of this. You know, one of the sayings or the slogans going along with curling is that you're either on the right side or the wrong side of the inch. So Jeff Walker, who throws lead stones for Team Guju, he was selected to throw the draw to the button to see who would get the hammer in the first end. So Walker last night throws his pregame button shot within five millimeters, five millimeters. And then Mark Kennedy, playing for Botcher, comes up behind him and gets inside it. So consequently, Botcher gets the hammer. They score their deuce early, never trailed, and go on to beat Guju uh, 5-4. So team Guju 5-4. So they keep going at the Grand Slam, the Pinties uh, Players' Championship, the Princess Auto Players' Championship. So imagine, five millimeters, looks like you're in good stead to get the hammer. Not so fast, Mark Kennedy, the lefty. All right. So... Mercer, I heard also Brian Medora mentioned, Dawson Mercer had an assist last night for the New Jersey Devils. Also, Alex Lohk had an assist for the Avalanche last night. So into the playoffs very shortly. The Devils match up against the Rangers, two versus three in the conference. I mean, I'm, of course, going to be on the Devils' bandwagon here. We don't know who the Avalanche are going to play just yet. But, of course, a lot of eyes will be on the Toronto Maple Leafs and Tampa Bay Lightning uh, matchup. And it's a good one. You know, there's lots of worries about how deep the Leafs might be. Obviously, they are offensive juggernaut. Not too bad defensively, really, overall team defense. I kind of think the Leafs are going to win that series. But you want to chime in? Let's go. And the harder kicks off tonight at the Hotter Memorial Arena out in Deer Lake. It's the Southern Shore Breakers visiting Deer Lake to take them on for the harder, of course, senior hockey supremacy. It pretty much is the biggest trophy played for in the province in the game of ice hockey. Curiously, and I didn't know this, it's the first time these two teams have ever faced off. The two-time defending champions are the Southern Shore. They've got six herders. Deer Lake won back in 2001 and 2005. But amazingly, they haven't played each other, and that's pretty startling stuff when you talk about two legendary clubs. So the herder kicks off tonight in Deer Lake. There's a thought out there that the Avalon East champion will have a leg up here. Uh, well, I guess the games have to be played on the ice, not on paper, but good luck to all involved in the Herder. And I'm sure many of you will be following along the Herder. Exciting times, a faux show. I was watching Canada at the Women's Worlds last night. Man, oh man. So the Canadians were absolutely all over Sweden. They eventually beat them 3-2, but it took an overtime goal from Sarah Nurse. They outshot the Swedes something like 48-14 to in regulation time and 6 nothing in overtime. So the story of the game was a Swedish goaltender, Emma Soderberg. She was standing on her head, but Canada off to the semis to play the Swiss uh, on Saturday. Both medal games take place, of course, on Sunday. And speaking of women's hockey... 
the, probably the greatest Canadian women's hockey player of all time, Haley Wickenheiser, is amongst a group of some 42 retired Canadian Olympians who signed a statement last month urging the Canadian Olympic Committee to reject the idea of allowing Russians to participate in the 2024 Games unless Russia withdraws from Ukraine. Also, that includes Belarusian athletes. So now that brings the total to 333 Canadians who are not allowed to travel to Russia. I don't know if any of them want to anyway. A bunch of them are politicians, of course. Canada is also one of 35 governments that have signed on to the exact same sort of wording to uh, exclude Russian athletes and Belarusian athletes from the Paris Olympics next year, if you want to take it on. And, you know, I don't know how closely anyone's following what's happening in Ukraine. Every now and then I take a look to see what's happening, but... You know, the road to peace seems very bleak, and I don't know if anyone's got so the so-called off-ramps set up where you can see an end to that invasion. Okay. So I didn't know, really know that this was a thing, but apparently there's a new emergency radio system, and it was set aside in the budget. More details are coming to light. So it's going to give the ability for first responders to be able to speak with each other. And, of course, that goes a long way for coordination and timeliness and response and what have you. The RNC and the RCMP are currently using this particular system. Shortly, it's going to be introduced to paramedics on the Avalon Peninsula. They're working with Bell and Motorola, the provincial government, and the numbers are pretty big here. Uh, $181.8 million over 12 years, including $21 million in this most recent budget. So apparently, and I'm not really sure I'm understanding this in full, but I wonder why there was so much disconnect amongst first responders. We do know, even if those of us simply with our own cell phones, is that there's so many dead spots. So this new Mercy radio system will alleviate some of those concerns. So obviously, a very good thing when we talk about public safety. It will expand to the rest of the province, uh, pardon me, the rest of the island in mid-24, Labrador likely in the middle of 2025, but this system will indeed be coming to bear, and hopefully that does enhance public safety and for our first responders. But on that front, you know, we talk about so many different uh, professionals inside of healthcare. Paramedics don't get enough attention, I don't think. So there's still pretty big questions to be asked of the province's plan to consolidate some 60 different paramedic service contracts just into the public system to be administered through the Department of Health and Community Services. It all sounds good because paramedics have been looking for what the future looks like, whether or not this was going to be the case, whether it be a private sector offering and some big multinational company coming to the province or consolidating into the public sector, into the Department of Health. But the questions still remain. So the province has brought in a consultant to help craft this new model. But what does it even mean? We don't even know any timelines associated with this. There was reference to some exemptions for certain areas of the province, the most rural and remote. Okay. So we don't know when it's going to come. But, you know, will this mean fewer ambulances, fewer paramedics? You know, where will some of these centralized hubs be for the hub-and-spoke model? What will it do for red alerts and wait times? We don't really know. The province hasn't offered much in the way detail on that front. Pretty important questions, though. You also wonder, you know, whether we're going to mimic some other jurisdictions regarding how we use an ambulance. You know, people generally think when they see an ambulance on the road, it's responding to an emergency. 
Not necessarily the case. We do indeed use ambulances, ambulances for some very routine patient transfers. In other provinces, they've come up with a different model as opposed to the fully equipped ambulance with the first responders on board. Less, of, less equipment, but yes, trained professionals to do the patient transfers in case there's a problem, but we use our regular ambulances and consequently you know full well that it has an implication on wait times, whether it be offloading at hospitals and or being so far away from the community that they're supposed to service because they're transferring someone, say for instance, for a dialysis appointment. So you want to take it on, we can do it. Overnight, and sometimes it really does feel like there's a concerted campaign or effort to put certain topics on the table for me to speak about, and fair ball, that's absolutely what we appreciate here. The telephone call is my preference, but someone saying we never, ever, 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 ever talk about COVID anymore. And you know, you're right, we really don't. I don't know how many people follow the Wednesday updates on the COVID hub, even though the numbers seem a little bit underreported. This most recent Wednesday update said no new deaths, which is a very good thing, but it's not like it's gone away. There's 20 people in the hospital. A number of them are in critical care. So, you know, for me, it really does feel, as much as it's not gone away in full, but I don't think people really want to talk about it that much. You know, it was so overwhelming for so long and the daily press conferences and people hanging on every word and waiting for the numbers even though it's really difficult to understand how we were supposed to absorb the numbers at certain points during the pandemic but you know this couple of emailers are really quite stern about the fact that quote-unquote betraying the public by not talking about it but it looks to me like so many people in the province and in the country and around the world they can acknowledge that is still around, but trying to get back to some semblance of normal life. You know, even if you just go about your daily business and notice some of the things that people were doing, whether it be wearing a mask or whatever the case may be. So it's not that we're afraid to talk about it. I'm just not so sure how many people want to hear anything about it anymore. Because as I said, it's been just so crushing for so long that it really does feel to me and many people in my social circles not being reckless and the like, but trying to get back on with it, you know, trying to get back to what we used to do and how we felt. And things have changed dramatically. But anyway, if you want to take it on, we're happy to do it. Okay, this is an interesting story, and this is not the first time it's happened. So there's some 13 Filipinos are here as temporary foreign workers to work in a crab processing plant, Hickman's Harbor. Of course, that's on Random Island. So again, you know, there was a, a time a few years ago where there was 25 Filipinos came, and the company that ran the plant, I think it was on the Great Northern Peninsula, said they couldn't get anyone to take the jobs. So if you know about the motivation and how we have arrived at this point uh, for needing temporary foreign workers to work in a crab plant, fair enough. But working at what? If you're a fish harvester or live in some of these communities, and if you're seeing crab from out of province being trucked in, because you know the processors want to get at it right? This is their business. They've got markets to satisfy. And it's long happened that we've seen uh, uh, boats from elsewhere, Magdalen Islands or wherever, steam in, unload, sell to the local processors because the crab fishery here is pretty much paused. I don't know if anybody's out at it. And I think as of today, the last zone to open, I think was 3K. So it's open. But at 220, apparently no one's going at it. 
Now, will that eventually just mean that someone's going to say, well, I've got to do it. I just have to do it. I need the cash, even if it's not going to result in huge profitability like it has in years past when it was eight bucks or as low as 6.15 a pound last year. And then we're encouraged to buy it from the wharf. And I'm looking for your opinion. What are you willing to pay for it on the wharf? How much will the harvesters be asking for it on the wharf? What are the financial implications for harvesters selling in that form or fashion? And they had, do have the ability to even drive further inland and sell to wherever, however. I mean, you know, I hear from a farmer all the time about things like the food markets and what have you. Yeah, you should be able to buy fresh seafood much more easily that came from our waters versus the, the current circumstances. So anyway, at 2.20, they're not going at it. So the Filipinos have arrived, but the process, what? Not really sure. You want to take it on? Let's go. And yes, with the newcomers, again, it doesn't make you a bad person to wonder aloud where people who are new to the country, new to the province, where they're going to live and how they're going to access health care. Well, we have an ongoing issue regarding both areas, and it's real, and the pressures are mounting. And yes, there remain families who have been in hotel rooms for months on end. What are we doing? How are we looking? Are we decreasing the numbers of people who have been relying in full on staying in a hotel room? I've been speaking with this one family. There's five of them, and they've been in the one hotel room going on four months now. So, again, it doesn't make you a bad person to wonder how we're dealing with those two important areas of housing and health care. Okay. A bit more on this. There's a bit of confusion out there about the potential for the largest work stoppage, federal government work stoppage, in three decades. So we know that the members of PSAC, some 125,000 strong, have voted in favor of putting a strike mandate forward. CRA, same thing. So the total is about 155,000. Some of the confusion is what sort of notice needs to be given and what type of essential services will remain in place. So out of the 155,000, it looks like about 100,000 could indeed, if if they choose to strike, to be on strike, to walk off the job, because there are essential employees that they don't have that opportunity. But this potential service interruption is obviously a concern for many people in the country. And as it pertains to the notice, apparently PSAC is governed by the Federal Public Sector Labor Relations Act and does not require the union to provide the employer with 72-hour notice. So they can just go at the drop of a hat. And here are some of the areas, key areas, where you might see some significant interruption to service. Agriculture, Agri-Food Canada... Some of those programs can be affected. There are obviously 35,000 employees at CRA, but you still got to go ahead and fight our taxes. There will be reduced capacity for fisheries enforcement, aquaculture, invasive species work, all, of course, under the guise of Fisheries and Oceans Canada. There are definitely going to be some consular services interrupted at Global Affairs Canada. There will be delays for immigration, refugees, and citizenship Canada. There is going to be a load of issues regarding Service Canada and what they can offer in person. Veterans Affairs Canada said they can anticipate some slowdown and interruption of service if this public sector service, uh, public sector strike happens. And from people that I've spoken to, our members of Peace Act, they say it feels much more likely that it will than it will not. Anyway, a lot of folks will be turning their attention, political watchers anyway, turning their attention to Ottawa this afternoon at 1.30 island time when the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff is set to testify in front of the Procedure and House Affairs Committee, PROC. That's Katie Telford, of course. She's been the Chief of Staff since the Liberals won power back in 2015. All the questions surrounding foreign interference, meddling, whatever you want to phrase it as, with the 2019 and the 2021 elections, 
questions about the so-called 11 federal election candidates that were supported by Beijing, Beijing operatives working as campaign staffers. This, of course, all initially reported by the Globe and Mail and Global. I wonder, I'm going to tune in, I think. I'm pretty interested in this testimony today. I wonder what kind of questions she'll be able to or is willing to answer. Because obviously when we talk about intelligence, there's got to be some cap on the public broadcasting of. So I wonder if, if we'll glean anything from Ms. Telford's testimony. You know, this has felt like a victory for the uh, conservatives and the NDP because the liberals, in a very bad look, were filibustering inside that committee to hopefully not see Ms. Telford uh, uh, be called to testify. But she says she's willing to, and that happens this afternoon at 1.30 Island time. So... Maybe we'll find out a bit more, but I got a funny feeling we won't find out a whole lot more. All right, how are we doing on the telephone this morning, David? Dave is out having a chat with Greg Smith, program director here at VOCM. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? All right, very quickly. It was on this date in 1925 that women in Newfoundland and Labrador gained the right to vote and to hold public office. Of course, for years, the tireless efforts of the suffragist movement and a lady named Armine Notting Gosling. She was actually from Ontario. She came to Newfoundland as a teacher, and she was very active in politics. She led the Women's Party. They ran a couple of candidates in the 1925 municipal elections right here in the city of St. John's. And so it was on this date, 1925, women granted, or gained, pardon me, granted, they were gained the right to vote and to hold public office. And Persistence Theatre is actually working on a, a statue, an erected statue of Gosling in St. They've got some public funding to make this a hopeful reality. So 1925, not that long ago. All right, we're on Twitter. We're a VOCM open line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That means you're in the queue to get on the air. The topic is completely up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number one. Say good morning to the president at the Newfoundland Labrador Teachers Association. That's Trent Langdon. Trent, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. Good morning. Good to speak with you. Happy to have you back on the program this morning, Trent. So what went on and what's the takeaway from the most recent BGM? Yeah, so as you know, we had our convention this week. Uh, it went from Tuesday to today, ultimately. And uh, we had about uh, 140 uh, members from across the province, uh, across the autumn into Labrador, uh, made their way to town for uh, for these meetings. I tell you, it was, it was a really uplifting event for all of us. Uh, I really wish the entire membership could have come. Uh, you know, we, we did some strategizing. We uh, uh, elected our provincial executive for the next two years. We uh, we set a path for where we need to be. We're going to be raising the bar moving forward. Uh, uh, people are very well aware we hope they are of the of the needs in the system, uh, but it was, uh, it was a recognition in many ways of, of where we need to be, and when we're we're ready to start moving ahead further. You know the frustrations are real. I live with a teacher. I have many teacher buddies, and they are all voicing very similar concerns. I would suggest, but uh, interestingly, in the tweet that you sent to give your followers a heads up that you were coming on, it said turn your collective strength into collective action. How hard is it to summon said collective strength given the frustrations? Because how do you turn that emotion into something that gives it a bit of uh, traction and gives them hope and wants them to come together because that's a tricky piece of business. It is, and isn't that the challenge, right? Day in, day out, you know, when, when we, you know, we can come together and do this, and there's there's great emotion attached to it, and there's excitement, and, and you know, uh, the collective group moving forward. But as you said, the day in, day out work of a, of a person, no matter what 
what sector you're in is challenged. How do you keep your morale moving? How do you keep that level of engagement up? And uh, uh, and that's that's why we we want to keep pushing this in this province. You know, the the, the kids of this province, the uh, the parents of this province, society as a whole has a real opportunity here to uh, to to speak up and to say, look, the education system needs some investment. It needs some vision because right now we don't have any. And it's not just the teachers. Obviously, we're a teacher association, but we have a great interest in in building a, a school system that is that is going to benefit the province moving forward. And, and this government, as as every um, uh, you know, why, why wouldn't they want the same? But we're not seeing that right now. We're seeing, uh, uh, you know, just talks and behind-the-scenes uh, discussions of things that might happen or there may be a plan, but that's not good enough for the teachers of this province. It's not good enough for the, the parents. Uh, there, there's no plan. We're hearing in healthcare as it should be, that uh, there's some distinct action taking place, but the same is not happening in education. And uh, in many ways, uh, as we've often said, is a hidden reality. And, and the teachers are feeling the stress, and, and unfortunately the students are feeling it too right now. What are the specifics, though, because, you know, when we talk about how many people in the province don't have a family doctor or yeah, yeah. all of those types of numbers, that, the data that's been compiled, the programs have been put in place, what exactly are you looking for? Well, we're, uh, we're ultimately looking for, uh, you know, obviously it's more than just uh, uh, saying there's, there's positions. Cause we, we have positions that, are, that aren't filled right now. So your, your first response to that, I'm sure, would be, well, if there's no teachers, how do we fill, fill the system? But when we're talking about a long-term vision, long-term plan, there needs to be ways to try and look at, okay, 5, 10, 15 years down the road. Because nothing's going to get better if it stays the same currently. So we're talking, you know, let's really make an effort here to reach out to the, to the young people of this province. You know, the high school students who may be, you know, what career path am I going to be taking here? Consider education. Teaching has been very good to me, and I've, I've greatly valued that particular uh, profession, and many others have. Uh, but I don't think this day and age right now that education is uh, necessarily a path that a lot of, a lot of uh, kids are thinking about. So that's one idea. Uh, as well, we've been saying for a while that uh, the answer is in this province. We need to train people where they are. Um, the old-fashioned way of uh, oh, the, the only training program right now is in St. John's, and if you're going to get it, you either got to come to St. John's or go to a, an institution outside the province, uh, you know, that, that needs to change. This province geographically is never going to change. So let's go back to, you know, let's get that Labrador Institute up and running where we can train people on the ground in Labrador who want to stay in Labrador and to be teachers in Labrador. And uh, just think about the investment in the communities and, and in the in the region. Uh, and then that's just going to filter its way throughout the province. Now, obviously, still continue a strong teacher education program here, but it would be through Memorial, uh, through distance learning and through other means that we could do that. When we're talking about investment, we're not talking about okay let's all of a sudden see 20 new positions added to uh, added to the system we're talking about investment in some long-term vision so it's the incentivization of some jobs to get people in because no doubt there's a lot of good people out there uh, some of our newcomers are trained teachers let's get that expedited let's get uh, uh, some of these newcomers into the classrooms they're, they're capable people but sometimes paperwork is a drag so you know it's, it's much deeper conversation you're just saying we're going to invest uh, a few new positions in the system how's the NLTA absorbing the uh, outcome of the Human Rights Commission uh, and Carter Churchill's issue because it's just not going to be about deaf children. We're going to be, I think, see precedent set because of that ruling to yep. talk about accommodations inside the so-called inclusive education model. So what is the association saying about that ruling? Because I think that has widespread implications. Yeah, we we followed that very closely, Patty. To be honest, and you know, obviously, when it was first going on, we didn't get too deeply involved because it wouldn't be appropriate for us to do so. But just think about what this has said. This is a precedent that's been set that uh, a public service uh, fell down. 
and it didn't give what a child needed to succeed. And and who knows what the long-term implications are going to be for that young person. And, uh, you know, you speak to any teacher in this province, and there's potential There's potential in this province for similar type cases taking place where children have not getting the support they need. Teachers are doing what they can with what they have, but uh, uh, if there's only so many resources to go around, if the time is not there to be spending with these children that need it, um, as I said in a previous interview, we, we are the, the highest, we had the highest percentage of medical complex needs in this entire country. Just think about that. This this small province has the highest percentage. So uh, that needs to be responded to. It needs to be ultimately that, yeah, a combination of things here. Uh, it's not just the Department of Education is responsible for this. We, we've always been saying it's a, it needs to be multi-pronged in terms of Department of Education, Department of Health, and Child, Youth, and Family Services, or CSSD. You know, these are that's what we're seeing in our schools right now. And until there's a joint effort of improving the system, that is, in our minds, the number one social service, uh, um, uh, I guess, service <laughs> that is in this province right now. And it's in our every single community. So until we see some major investment and long-term vision, we keep saying it's here and there's a plan, but there's there's nothing in place that we can see. But to go back to your point about the Churchills, it's a it's precedent setting. It is so is so high up there, not just in in Newfoundland and Labrador, but nationally. We've got a situation that's been proven that a child did not get what they needed, and teachers are seeing that that's happening every day. Uh, last one: Do you have any better understanding than most of us do about what the benefit to students and teachers will be with? blending the NLESD into the department because, I mean, they tell us in vague terms, well, it's going to improve outcomes, it's going to improve the system. How? I have no earthly idea. Do you? I don't, and that's, that's the other, and that's, and we're, we're living in vacuums here. We're feeling as if nothing has ever been shared, and, uh, we, you know, we want to be part of the solution. We want to be problem, or a part of the, uh, of uh, fixing the problem. So, bottom line, we've heard very little about this dissolution on the school board. I'm never, I've never been a fan of just, uh, just increasing the level of, of governance or the level of management uh, such that, you know, you can really see what's happening on the ground. I was always a fan of having your regional, uh, uh, um, uh, management uh, setups. Uh, there's, it's been proven that the, the more you uh, remove these decision makers from the grassroots or on the ground work, that uh, management becomes lesser and. A bigger issue for me right now, to be honest, is they've removed this. They're looking at removing the school board system. I don't know how people in this province did not speak up when they decided to take trustees away from the people. Trustees are elected people by the people to govern uh, what goes on in our schools. Government removed the trustee system, and right now. The education system in this province is going to be purely managed by government without any trustees. So just think about that setup. It was a democratic piece that was removed. And I don't think the people of this province realize how significant of a move that was. But in a province that is this size, you need to be able to manage every area. Because living in St. John's and working in St. John's is certainly not the same as living and working on the coast of Labrador or teaching their child on the coast of Labrador. Uh, it, it's different. And we can never uh, – it's comparing apples and oranges ultimately. I appreciate the time, Swarney. Trent, thank you. And, Patty, I just want to say, if I can, uh, please be safe to all of our members returning. We've had members here this week from all parts of, uh, um, of the province as they're on the road and as they're flying. Please be safe. And to the members that couldn't come to our convention, uh, we're hoping that everything that was decided in uh, over the last couple of days, that uh, moving forward in the next couple of years, we can see some significant change. Thanks for your time, Trent. Thank you very much. Thanks, Patty. All Take right. Care. Bye-bye. It's Trent Magnan. He's the president at the NLTA. Before we get to the break, let's go to line number four and say good morning to Jim Power. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air. Good morning, sir. How are you today? Very well. Thank you. How about you? 
Very good, thank you. I'm the uh, I'm with the uh, RCMP Veterans Association, and I'm just wondering about tomorrow um, at the Legion, April 15th, or April 15th, we're having a clothing and book sale at the Legion, Branch 56 in Pleasantville. All the proceeds for the uh, this sale tomorrow are going to go to the Newfoundland and Labrador Food Bank, and I think it's a it's probably an appropriate time to have something like this too, because sometimes we tend to forget about it in the in the in the off season, like Christmas and all these places. We seem to pump these uh, uh, to, to to do more for the fundraising and that. But uh, we're having it tomorrow. The items for paperback books are fifty cents. Hardcover books are a dollar. There's also clothing, which is uh, very reasonably priced as well. And we ask people if uh, it starts at between 1 and 4, but the Legion does open at 12. So if anybody would like to come down there for their lunch first, they do have a menu down there where you can buy stuff. Uh, they're most welcome to come down for lunch and then come over and see us after and uh, maybe pick out some books for your summer vacation, if nothing else. Jim, did you say it's the Legion down on the boulevard? Yes, uh, Branch 56. Branch 56. Show. They have a new chef. The food is excellent, if anyone wants to go uh, down. It, yes, as a matter of fact, they told us we, we have our... Uh, Monthly meetings there sometime, and we have uh, we have meals there. And yes, the food is uh, very good, so you're all welcome to come down. And hope you'll take time to drop by and see us. What sort of programs are inside the RCMP Veteran Association that gets funded by events like this? Well, the other things, we do a fundraising through the year, and the money that we raise, we're not outwardly, you don't hear about us a lot. It goes for veteran programs and advocacy programs within the veterans themselves for sick and people like that. But we also do things with the uh, the gathering place. We, we serve at the gathering place once a year. We also do things at the, the United Church uh, uh, as well uh, when they have uh, the dinners down there. Um, we help at the Salvation Army. In the around Christmas time for packing and distributing gifts, uh, and also for the uh, turkey raffles or the, or the turkey gathering around Christmas time. So uh, uh, the, the, we're kind of a low key, I guess, in the public in the public eye. But uh, we also the money raised uh, in Fiona last year, as an example, uh, we gave about twenty five hundred dollars for the uh, people over the uh, victims of uh, Fiona, mm-hmm. and of course that was matched, I think, by the federal government or Red Cross, but somebody else was matching that. So that turned into be a $5,000 donation based on our efforts. So we're very proud of things like that. As you should be. So, uh, yeah, my father was actually a member of the Newfoundland Constabulary Pre-Confederation. Then spent some time as an RCMP member in the early 50s. So soft spot here. Uh, Jim, good luck with the event. Thanks very much for your time this morning. Thank you very much, and you all have a good day. You too, sir. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Jim Power with the RCMP Veterans Association. Let's take a break. When we come back, Dr. Stephen Majors in the queue to talk about an issue surrounding where graduating nurses can or cannot work. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number two. Good morning, Dr. Stephen Major. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you doing today, Patty? Couldn't be better. Thank you. How about you? Oh, good, good. I'm just um, calling, I guess, because of, uh, I'm not sure who's made the decision, if the government's made the decision, but with the graduating classes here, basically trying to force all the nurses who are graduating to go into long-term care positions. 
And we're in an environment currently where nurses have lots of opportunities to work elsewhere. And if if we do something like this, it's a, I would call a draconian measure to try to force people to go to a job at, in any, any role, no matter whether it's nursing or any other job. And in, in this current setup, basically nurses can decide to leave the province and go somewhere else and make twice the amount of money. So here we're taking a situation where we need these nurses and, and trying to force them to go into to roles that they may or not want and uh, potentially lose you know half the class going away. Exactly what's happening, though. Help us understand, because you're intimately involved, you're very close by it. So are they being told that the only opportunities are long-term care? So basically, my my understanding again, there's not always a good transparency with some of these decisions, and and you, you hear, is that basically the only permanent positions that they're offering are in long-term care. Yeah, so okay. if you want a permanent position, you get it. Any other position will be a temporary position. But there's permanent positions that were available that they're now not making available. So we have this situation where we could potentially get every one of that class graduating to take up positions that we need to be taken up in the system. But yet we're making a a short-sighted decision to try to to force them into one area. I I can remember when I graduated, and I've been out for a while now, 28 years ago, they had the same thing. They tried to restrict family physicians. So at that time, there was an excess of family physicians, if you can believe that. And at that time, they put a 50% restriction in the bigger centers. So if you wanted to practice as a family physician in St. John's, Gander, Grand Falls, or Cornerbrook, you'd only get paid 50%. So half of the people decided, well, I'm not going to stay in the province and left. And those people who leave don't generally come back. Mm-hmm. So we lost this, this this population of physicians because of the short-sighted decision. We're trying to redistribute people to certain areas of the province, but it wasn't an effective measure. So my, my fear is that this is not an effective measure. You know, when we're starting to spend like $100 million on travel nurses and not just pay the nurses what they need to be paid and then have them all have positions that are healthy, the the decisions that are made, I mean, there's, there's been a perpetual things that happen in the system. Like if I'm a nurse right now, back in back in the day, if I wanted to go to my, my son's you know soccer game or he was in the finals and I had a shift, I could ask for that day off and I, I could get it. And nowadays, basically, there's no way to get a day off. You can't. You can request it, then it won't be accepted. And then what happens is people have to call in sick. So we're in this crisis mode continuously, and yet we're, we make these short-sighted decisions that that just boggle my mind. I'm just very frustrated because the, the trickle-down effect here is that if we don't have the nurses, we we don't have the operating capacity because we don't have the ability for 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 people to get surgeries because there's not enough physicians in the hospital hospital as well. There's people who, like, nurses want to transfer to a new position. They have to get approval to, to leave. And there's nurses now who've been approved to go to a new position and waiting a year or more to actually get into that position because there's not someone to replace them. So why are we making a decision in the short term to try to limit where these people can go rather than just hire more full-time positions? I just don't I just don't understand the logic here. It, it baffles my mind. If you look at them as one-off issues, you can maybe try to uh, think that they might make sense. But when you put them all together, it all seems very counterintuitive. You know, we've actually dangled money, bonus money out there for nurses on the casual list to move off to permanent full-time. And it doesn't look like it's been very successful. 
successful. We've offered bonuses for nurses to move from wherever they're working to long-term care. But when you put it all together, I guess the motivation here, I'll just bounce this off you, Dr. Major, is if we get it right at long-term care, that will go a long way to dealing with some other issues, whether it be the beds being occupied by patients who should be in long-term care, but there's some 200 beds in long-term care across the province that are, are now not staffed, so consequently no resident or patient therein. So I suppose the motivation is if you get it right there, you can deal with surgical backlogs. You can deal with some of the congestion and the capacity issues in the hospitals. Does that, does that sound like where they're trying to go with this? It's the R, but then there's the carrot and the stick, right? Right. And we know the carrot works and the stick doesn't. So it, it's, if you want more, that you may have to say we're going to pay substantially more for those nurses to go in the long term care. You know, the, I mean, you have to understand travel nursing right now, they're making double what they would make if they stayed here. That's, you know, if you're a young grad and you've got, you know, debt and, and other things, you're not really tied to here, you're, you're going to fall into this. I mean, we have nurses flying here to B.C. and then working there and then meet nurses in B.C. flying here to work. Like the whole the whole system is in a mess that we've created by, by doing these these temporary solutions that are not long term. If you need people in a certain area, you pay them more. No difference if you need doctors in a rural area, you probably have to pay them more. Like you, you cannot expect that you're going to get things with by by being punitive to people it's just human nature we don't respond well to that none of us do it's, it doesn't matter what job you're in but it's just frustrating because there are solutions you know but how you treat your employees makes a difference and morale is low in in the in the in the workplace but morale is low generally because people feel disrespected you know they feel that they're not valued but in a good culture i mean we know for google everybody wants to work for google because they treat them well they give them a free lunch you get free ride to work you treat people well that you get the best out of people and i just don't see that culture in the way we treat people in the healthcare system and it's hard like people are getting beat up lifting patients patients are, are you know we have aggressive patients of people and nurses and all the all the healthcare workers get injured from patients like there's just a lot of issues but we got to do better and i don't know how it seems like we just keep beating the same drum, expecting a different outcome, and it's just not working. And, 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 and I just don't hear people talking about, let's do things differently. How do we help people? You know, even like this, there's inflexibility in positions. If you want to work as a nurse, it's either full-time or that's it. But if I had two kids at home and I want to work a 60% position, why can't you be flexible enough to give me a 60% position? Like, it's just, I, there, there is a solution. It's just that nobody's doing it, and I don't know why. 28 years I've been plugging this place for trying to bang my head, trying to get people to get better care, and it just frustrates me that there's a solution, and we're not doing it. Well, we certainly try to talk about the solution side here on this program as much as possible, and the whole private or travel, private agency or traveling nurses, whatever the right phrase is, the government is contesting the $100 million number, but curiously, when they sent out the an email saying that they don't think that's the right number, they didn't back it up with anything, so I don't know if anybody really knows exactly what's going on there but i can only imagine if i'm working alongside someone who gets to work less and make more that really builds a lot of resentment in the workplace so we've just created that problem unnecessarily my worry i don't know if it's a worry my thought that with all the additional healthcare transfer dollars for instance and knowing that the very mobile in-demand healthcare professionals a lot of money we're going to be spending province against province you know we're going to have bidding wars yeah. for healthcare professionals and that's not going to improve the system either so i don't know what the issue is 
if we set up some sort of metrics that, you know, here's what we're paying nurses, including cost of living and real estate and all those types of issues, province to province, and set some sort of number so that we just don't go down the rabbit hole of an auction house for nurses or doctors or any other healthcare professional. A hundred percent. I don't disagree on that. And I've seen that evolve over the past 20 years and not a fan of it. But again, part of it is because we didn't fill those positions, this created this second tier of, of health you know, provision. And the only way to fix it is to provide people a wage and benefits that they'll say, well, I'd rather take that than be doing the travel. And you know most Newfoundlanders, we're, we're, if you stay here and you want to be with your family, you'll stay here. Mm-hmm. You'll put up with a little bit of worse on it. But again, it has to be somewhat competitive. But I can't imagine going to work and work next to someone who makes twice the amount doing the same work. It's just not its not a feasible long-term solution. And, and we've self, instead of fixing things on the front end, we've sort of put this solution in, but it's created more. And again, the same with not hiring all these nurses who are graduating or giving them an opportunity to go where they want to go, we're just turning off another another generation of nurses, you know? Yep. Um, it's just, it's, it's you know, it's, it's sad thing is really what it is. Last one, Dr. Major, and this is about doctors. So the NLMA has been long saying we need to change the way we pay doctors. You know, the whole antiquated fee-for-service is not working, and consequently that might cost us doctors here in the province as well. So they've moved off to whatever percentage of fee-for-service uh, plus is blended capitation. Your thoughts on where they've gone here? I think it's excellent, to be honest with Good. you. I was involved in some of the planning, and it may actually start getting people to go back into primary care because the newer generation of physician wants to spend time with the patient, and they don't want to be a one-problem-per-visit kind of physician. And in that context, the old model never worked because it was a volume-driven business, and, and it just doesn't sit right that you say to somebody, okay, yeah, that's your one problem for today. And I've I've never done that. But again, so having a system where people are attached to a a physician longitudinally um, in a way that they can provide that care, I think think this is a a good change. I think that, you know, we're going to see hopefully physicians who are in in alternate jobs now coming back to practice. Um, The biggest issue with that is the implementation, how long. So it's going to take a year for us to to see where things get implemented, but I think that is actually going to make a big difference in the long term. And we've got a model that's a bit um, different than some of the other models in the province, so there is the potential that we may actually recruit people in this current model. So I'm very hopeful on that front, to be honest with you. Appreciate your time this morning, Doctor. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Dr. Stephen Major there. Let's take a break. When we come back, agriculture, then we're going to talk about some teacher shortage issues up in Labrador. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number three, Adam Furlong, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. Morning to you. Um, Yeah, so I just wanted to continue our conversation we've been having in the last few weeks around agriculture and crown land. Let me start by saying... Had Minister on very recently, and I had a couple of topics that I wanted to broach. As soon as I clicked off to say goodbye, I thought, why didn't I ask him about Bloomfield Farm? And that's my, that's my mistake, and I will follow up. Yeah, no worries. I, I actually heard that call, and I was hoping that maybe you might say something, but no, no worries at all. There's a lot of things in that department that need to be uh, talked about. So, Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, so I basically I just wanted to lay out like a timeline of events throughout history that has led to the issues that we have with uh, Crown Lands right now. Uh, First of all, I've still been unable to get any real response from the minister or or his office to talk about any of these issues. They're just still turning a blind eye to it. 
Um, but so, like, like we all know, um, Newfoundland was kind of discovered or settled in, in the 1500s. So at that time, people started coming here, and they were told by the British government, you're not allowed to stay here because the British government were afraid that if people lived here, they would interfere with the the English's access to all natural resources, mainly the migratory fishery off of Newfoundland. Um, people started coming here anyway, sort of illegally, according to British rule. And they just started settling here because, I mean, who wants to sail back and forth across the Atlantic Ocean in a, a wooden sailing ship on a regular basis? Um, so my hometown was settled in the early 1800s, so just over 200 years ago. At that time, there was no government here, and and there was no crown division that you could get land from. Um, it wasn't until 1832 that Newfoundland received any kind of formalized government, which uh, consisted at that time, in 1832, of a representative government. It was appointed legislation by the by the British government as a as a British Dominion. And it wasn't, as we all know, it wasn't until 1949 that the first government of the province, as a as a province of Canada, was elected. So people lived in my hometown before there were any form of organized government on this island. And people lived there at, at least 120 years before Confederation with Canada. So that's 120 years before any form of modern-day Newfoundland government existed. And now, today, our modern-day government, which didn't even exist at the time the people lived, started settling them, their families there, feel that they have a legal and, and moral and ethical right to claim that these families do not own their land, it's, it's absolutely preposterous. It, it truly is. And then you fast track. And like we've had a couple of people on the show talking about this from a legal perspective, not necessarily their own business interests and stuff. And all, all opinions and sides of this are valuable to the conversation. But what the solution looks like, I'm not entirely sure. You know, we do it differently in this province with the Crown Lands and Registry of Deeds as two separate entities versus in other parts of the country where they have a very much more streamlined uh, issue. If we revert back to what it felt like and looked like and how it operated in 1970, Maybe that's a workable solution, but doesn't seem like government's got a whole lot of appetite to make it easier, whether it be for business or individuals. They are very strict and they're very diligent. I'm not so sure they're as diligent with Crown Lands when it comes to some of these uh, wind proposals, but they certainly are with folks like you. Yeah, well, that's that's the biggest part of the problem as I see it. Like there is no real solution here that's going to fix the entire problem. Whatever route is taken to try to address this, there's going to be uh, benefits that find solutions for certain people, but there's going to be other uh, pitfalls that are going to create more problems that are that are probably impossible to foresee until they start to happen. Um, I mean, you can you can look at the registry of deeds and that whole thing. Because, you know, modern-day real estate transactions all gets logged in, in the Registry of Deeds. So, like, probably anything from 1990 onward is pretty reliable to look in the Registry of Deeds and say, yeah, that makes sense. But before that, I mean, there were all kinds of things that got accepted as a record in the Registry of Deeds that just make no sense at all. So you can't even just say, you know, we're going to blindly uh, accept the Registry of Deeds as as a legal record of who owns what land because that will create all kinds of other problems. Um, 
So I, I, I just wanted to switch gears a little bit here and just talk about uh, agriculture and, and business in general in this province. And I mean, I've heard you say it many times, but like, isn't the role of our government in our society and in our economy in, in particular to kind of foster an environment in which businesses can thrive? Because the government doesn't create jobs, really. Any jobs they do create are, are public sector jobs. And they should be creating an environment in which businesses can grow and thrive. And in that way, those businesses can create employment that will contribute to the economy. It will contribute to uh, positive uh, employment numbers in the province. It will contribute to the government in way of taxes that are paid by the business and by their employees. But that's not what they've been doing. I mean, since since the first story came out about me and my issues in the news, I have been absolutely flooded with phone calls and emails and messages from people and businesses across this province that are experiencing similar issues or different issues that all boil back to uh, crown land and things like that. I mean, you're you're familiar with my situation. I've also been contacted by a construction company that is a pretty successful construction company um, in a urban area in Newfoundland. And they recently purchased a piece of land that they were going to build a big workshop on to expand their business and and do more business and hire more people. And very similar situation to what I've had when they started applying for building permits and everything. They got a phone call from Crown Lands. No, you can't get a building permit for that because uh, about half the land is Crown Land and whoever you bought it from didn't own it so they couldn't sell it to you in the first place. I've also received an email from somebody in Labrador City who was trying to uh, start a community program, um, which was basically like a community garden, where they were, and I mean, we all know the issues with food supply in Labrador and and the cost of food in Labrador. So this guy was trying to create a community garden so that people in the community could, you know, get their own little plots of ground in in the garden and, uh, and grow their own food and stuff like that. But the the piece of land that they were trying to use was Crown Land. And this person tried for months and months to try to get a response from Crown Land about how they could go about getting this piece of land to use it for, you know, not even something that's for profit. It's a community program just to just to try to help his community. And he literally did not receive an answer, no response whatsoever from the department. And we look at places like Trinity Loop. I mean, they just released a uh, an RFP for anyone who's interested in uh, restoring Trinity Loop. I know of somebody who has been trying to get Trinity Loop for seven or eight years and could not make any headway with it. And now, I mean, I don't know if you've been down there or seen pictures. I mean, the place is in ruin down there. Now, if anybody gets a hold of that, it's going to be a very expensive ordeal to try to restore that to any any kind of usable condition. And And then I've been contacted by many other individuals who were trying to start businesses, and they gave up before they even got started for no other reason than the amount of barriers put in their way by the government and the amount of time that it takes to get anything done here. I mean, I don't know about you, but I have never heard a single positive interaction with Crown Lands. Anyone who I know who has ever had any dealings with them, it's been an absolute nightmare to deal with anything related to that department in particular. 
And it's needless, you know, and uh, I do uh, assert frequently that government's job is to make the landscape and the environment uh, welcoming and appealing and enticing for people to start business uh, and to create jobs, not for them to put ads in the paper. I mean, it's just it's, it's pretty clear uh, cut and dry for me. Uh, Adam, I always appreciate your time. Uh, anything else very quickly before I have to take a break? Yeah, I just wanted to say one more thing. Um, the type of farming that I'm doing here, biointensive regenerative market gardening, is is well known in across the world as being the commercial farming model that has the lowest barrier to entry. Um, this farming model is growing in popularity all over the world. It's in almost every Canadian province, almost every U.S. state. It's in Mexico, South America, all over Europe, Australia, New Zealand. There's a very successful market garden farm in Arizona in the middle of the desert, and it can work there, but it can't work here for no other reason than a government who creates an environment in which it's not possible. And I should not have to scratch and claw for every single inch of forward momentum that I can make with the growth and expansion of my business since the day that I started. And the only thing that has caused me any trouble so far is our government. Uh, Adam, really appreciate your time. After the news, we go. Stay in touch. I will. Thanks, buddy. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. That's frustrating stuff. Uh, let's take a break for the newscast. Appreciate the patience of those of you in the queue and those of you about to be in the queue. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the NDP member for Lab West. That's Jordan Brown. Jordan, you're on the air. Thank you for having me this morning, Patty. Happy to do it. Yes, no, and I said I just uh, heard your earlier conversation talk about recruitment in Labrador, and I, I said it was great time for me to call in today, uh, because, like I said, um, just to continue on, we've been facing uh, recruitment and retention issues for all kinds of different government services in the, in this region. You know, we have issues with healthcare, just day-to-day government services, but also another big one that I, I seem to be the missing out of the conversation and but, but brought up just earlier in today is recruitment and retention of teachers in Labrador. And uh, specifically, I want to talk about Labrador West, where uh, I found it fascinating that even when I grew up here, we, we didn't have these issues. But in the, ever since we removed the Labrador School Board, uh, recruitment and retention of uh, educational professionals and, and, and the people that help service it has become a massive issue here. Like, it's, it's unprecedented about how many teachers and support staff and maintenance people and clerical staff that just we just can't retain in this region right now yeah i mean the, i guess the reasons are obvious though right well well impartially like it partially is but at the same time um when we lost the Labrador school board it seems that um, a lot of like the hands-on, like you know, the school board office was right next to the schools. Um, you know, like it, it seemed that once we were moved away from the region, uh, it became this distant thing that had no interest in the region, and that uh, a lot of the uh, people that I've spoken to in the education system here just feels like they're completely ignored. Like none of their issues are ever addressed. Uh, maintenance on the schools, be, uh, as maintenance staff uh, got cut in the region, uh, maintenance on the schools become less and less. And, and it's almost like it became this forgotten place. And a lot of the education workers, like you know, teachers, IRTs, even the staff here, have become so, uh, they feel they're so forgotten that it, it become this place where a lot of teachers just said, you know what? Shag it. I don't, I don't want to work here anymore. And we lost so many great professionals in this region. Um, once we lost our, 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 our Labrador school board, our own separate school board. 
Yeah, you know, Trent Langdon made the point that, you know, as opposed to the only place you get trained as a teacher is at Memorial University's campus here in St. John's, maybe, just maybe, if it was more accessible, specifically in Labrador, that we might indeed be able to attend to this uh, much, much easier. Because, you know, if the barrier is simply moving away from Labrador to be in St. John's for the entirety of your training, that's probably a hurdle that contributes to the problem. Oh, it is one little small part of it. But at the end of the day, if you go to work for a system that doesn't appreciate you, that doesn't actually acknowledge that where you're teaching, it doesn't acknowledge the fact that, you know, there's unique needs and challenges in the region, it's going to become harder and harder to actually keep people. You know, training people is one aspect. Keeping them is another aspect. And right now, from what we're hearing in Labrador West, is that once we lost our own identity, when we lost our own school board, when we lost that actual, like, you know, local-based decision-making, it became much, much harder for education professionals in this region. And, you know, pay is one thing. You know, um, housing is another thing. And housing is a big one, too, as well, because we can't track anyone if we can't if, – if, if the rent here is higher than the wage of the teacher, that is another big problem we do face in this region as well. And and the thing about it is, lucky for Lab West, we do have a building owned by the school district, um, but the bottom floor of it is completely empty when they move, because that, that used to be the Labrador School Board's head office. So the whole bottom floor of this building is completely empty and been vacant since 2015. Um, and government never had the foresight to uh, you know, well, we're not using it as an office anymore. We can convert it back into apartments, you know, and, and completely ignore that part of it. We're, we're, we're ignoring the actual issues of the thing, and there's no one wants to deal with it. I, I've, I've brought it to the minister's attention. I've brought it to the attention of other people in the department of education. Nobody wants to deal with the retention issues in the region. No one wants to deal with the maintenance issues in the region. It's just that we've become this this forgotten place and it's just here and, and, and Labrador where they're so focused on what's happening in Metro that they completely forgot that they are also responsible for Labrador. 100%. So, you know, what we are seeing in the healthcare world, and I do think that we have really turned a bit of a blind eye to some of the shortages and the issues inside the K-12 system, but if we are specifically offering more money and incentives for, for instance, a doctor in the West Valley or a doctor in Bonavista, $200,000. I mean, there's obviously an incentive there, and it worked. So... If we are talking about the combination, whether it be the price, the cost of rent, and the rate of pay, all those things can be dealt with in the same in the same form and fashion. If we understand what all the financial hurdles will be, I'm sure there's a way we can put together a compensation package that reflects the rent and everything else associated with working and living in Labrador. Well, that, that's a, that, that, and that's a common thing. I know mining companies and stuff do these uh, do these packages as well for you know um, like you know when they work in places like that. I know government has done it in the past. But here's the thing: I got such an outflow of actual government employees. So like we talk healthcare, we talk about government services, we talk about education. I have such an outflow of these uh, of these people that they're like, why am I going to work in a workplace like this when I can turn around and go work in a place that actually values my labor? And right now, um, education professionals and teachers and clerical staff, IRTs, guide counselors, right now they feel in this region that their labor is not respected. They feel that they're not getting the uh, you know attention that they need. They're teaching in you know in conditions that you know are, are not acceptable. And I've been told time and time again by these professionals, if we still had the Labrador School Board, I would not be treated this way. And this is what it comes down to. It's 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 
you can give them all the money you want, Patty, but if you don't fix the actual systemic issues in the system, they're not going to stay. I got a, I got, like, I'll take the French school board over here. They've been asking for years and years. They want a full-size gym because this school was built in 1959. They want a full-size gym for their gym class. They've asked for years and years and years. They've never got it. They've asked for the school. Uh, they asked for the government to help them to put up an apartment building so they can actually recruit and retain French teachers in this region. Ignored. This is for years, Patty. This is long before what, what all the stuff that's going on now. I got when they got rid of um, when they went to full day kindergarten and got rid of lunchtime busing. Um, I got a primary school here. They uh, they need a lunchroom for the kids. Ignored. Nope, we're not doing it. I got a school over here in Wabush that needs some uh, maintenance done and needs some work on accessibility. Nothing is ever done. I got a high school that is in that they that has all these, every bit of lighting changed in it because the manufacturer don't make the light bulbs for it anymore. It, it, they, put, they kicked that can down the road to the point now where they got no choice but to actually do the work and completely do it, but they kicked the can down for years and years to do the work. I got um, short maintenance staff. Like we only got, I, for some time, we only had one maintenance man for three schools. You know, this is this is the stuff that they kept kicking down, kicking down, down. But back when the Labrador School Board was on the go, and they actually had the offices in Labrador, they, they looked after it, there was no maintenance issues because they actually took the time and understood what was going on here. But now you have to wait for something to come down from St. John's to get the work done while they're also dealing with every other school in this province. Centralization on this scale doesn't work for a place this big. Yeah, and curiously, my boys went to a neighborhood school here in the city of St. John's with no cafeteria and a little tiny gym, <laughs> just for a little context. Uh, anything else, Jordan, before I take one more call on a break? But, but I just want to mention, Patty, like, you know, we're, we're talking about we're rolling everything now into the department. We're talking about the centralization of health care and stuff like this. If they're going to go down the same road with health care that they're going down the road with what they did with education, I am worried for Labrador and how it's going to do when we centralize everything. That is my biggest worry. We are not the same as the island. We are a different, unique place. And if that context is not taken into effect, what's going on with education right now in Labrador is going to be the same, well, it's almost the same now as it is with healthcare, but it's just not going to fix the problem. We need to make sure that we have our eyes on the ball but here, but at the same time, we have to understand the realities of where we live. I appreciate this, Jordan. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Jordan Brown, NDP member for Lab West. Let's go to line number one. Nick, you're on the air. Yeah. Oh, morning, Patty. Morning to you, Nick Cranford. How are you? Uh, awesome. Uh, the reason I'm calling today is I want to share with everyone, uh, this week uh, the, the APMA announced the uh, the awards for their uh, the annual book awards, and uh, Helen Escott we are proud to share, has been nominated for the best book in Atlantic Canada. Yeah. yeah, the specific award that she's nominated for is the best book published in Atlantic Canada, right? Mm-hmm, that's right. Yeah, for Operation Masonic. I did see that roll by. Oh, yeah, it's it's quite the book. Uh, we're very pleased. Um, the awards are going to be announced on, on June 7th in Halifax. And uh, all of us are going to be there, myself, Margot, and Gary, and uh, it's going to be quite the event. And, of course, we're talking about the good folks from Flanker Press. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a couple of locals here. I know Mark David Turner was uh, mm-hmm. nominated. Lisa Moore was nominated. I can't remember any other locals off the top of my head. That's right. 
Yeah, you got that right. And uh, yeah, we're we're proud to be in very good company of those fine folks. Yeah, maybe Bridget Canning as well comes to mind. Anyway. I think so, yeah. Anyway, congratulations to Helen. I do know her and Robert a little bit, done a couple of events with them. So she's been pr- fairly prolific as a writer as well. Absolutely. I mean, she's written five books with us uh, in the Operation series. And uh, she's got another novel that's uh, coming out uh, this summer. And it's kind of breaking away from the series a little bit, so it's gonna. She's really sinking her teeth into something pretty new. It's gonna be. It's gonna be quite exciting. Well, congratulations to Flanker Press, and certainly congratulations to Helen Escott on her nomination for that prestigious award. Well, thank you very much. And uh, before I go, I just wanted to say, you know, make sure everyone, you all, go out and get Operation Masonic. If you love the Da Vinci Code, if you're into crime killers, it's gonna be. You need to put it on your reading list. Thanks for this, Nick. Appreciate your time. Take care, buddy. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Okay. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, uh, we're talking moose, and there's a fellow calling for Happy Valley Goose Bay. He's a maintenance employee working with the English-speaking school district. That's Richard. We'll speak with him as well. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Richard. You're on the air. Oh, hello. Hello to hey. you. Yes, sir. Yes. Uh, I just wanted to make some comments about the NDP leader that was on the line there about how the school board is just falling behind ever since it went from the Labrador School Board to NLESD. Sure. Now, you're a maintenance employee up in Happy Valley Goose Bay, right? Yes. I'm actually working my last day now because I'm moving on to something different because of the issues of just being able to get my work done at a appropriate, like, just for instance, like, if, I, if something were to, like, a, a, a sink or something were to break down that I would have to get apart... I mean, it takes up to at least two weeks to even be able to get anything because I have to put in a quote, and then for that quote to be approved by someone down in St. John's, and depending on if it's something that might be on a procured resource list, I might not be even able to get it here. I'd have to go through a whole other system just to be able to get a piece of equipment that I might be able to fix, you know what I mean? What's the, the other system? It's it's like a procurement system that we have specified contractors that are located down on the island that we have to order our supplies from, certain supplies. Like we have people for plumbing gear, plumbing supplies, people for painting supplies, and like certain individual products and stuff like that. Now, I can understand certain kind of plumbing stuff when it comes to the uh, commercial toilets and stuff like that, but... When it comes to just a normal standard residential toilet like we do have in some of the schools, it shouldn't be an issue for me to go and get some parts and even a can of paint if I want it. I mean, for me to have to, you know, pick out something from St. John's just to put a coat of paint on the wall, it just slows everything down. And I don't know, it's just, uh, it's, ever since the, the lab, when the Labrador School Board was up and running, we had a way that we could just go down and to the office, get a PO for what we wanted, go to the store, pick it up, and then we can fix whatever was broken that day. Now, if something breaks down, it could take up to two weeks just to even fix it. Is there a dollar amount where we have to go through the formal procurement? Because for some departments, I think, is unless there's an invoice over $500, then there's a bit more latitude. Is that not the case with you guys? Well, with the, with the procurement thing, with the, where we have uh, contracts with certain companies, if it's that kind of product, we have to get it from them regardless. Okay. But there are things that we can go and get quotes for 
But once we reach above $1,000, we have to get at least three quotes. And for a place like Goose Bay, sometimes we don't even have place. To, we, we aren't even able to get three quotes in town. We'd have to call around to the province, you know? Mm-hmm. You understand. How long have you been in Labrador? I've lived here all my life. And how long have you been working with the uh, school district there? For the last five years. Just after, not long after it became NLESD. You know, so when you bring these concerns forward, whether it be in the schools that you service or straight up to the district or the department, what's the reaction? What does anybody have to say to, obviously, logistical nightmares? Um, just basically things have to go through St. John's. Simple as that. Yeah. I mean, uh, like I said, I've been here for the last five years. Everybody tells me back when it was the Labrador School Board, everything ran so much more smoother and everything could get done so much more quicker. And like, as he was saying, as shortage of staff, I'm the only maintenance man guy on right now for the three schools here in town. I mean, our guy injured himself at work and he's been off work since December and they haven't even had a replacement hired on for him. So and that, that's, that's one of the main reasons why I'm leaving because I've been here for the last four months working by myself and I'm drained. Where are you moving on to, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, I'm heading up to Boise's Bay. All right, okay. Well, that's a lucrative opportunity anyway. Yeah, I mean, but it's not all about the money, right? I mean, I had all intentions on taking this job after Muskrat Falls and, and taking this as my retirement job. This is what I wanted to do for the rest of my time, but just frustrations got me moving on. I'm familiar with frustration, Richard. I can tell you that much. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I'm sorry to hear that because... You know, sometimes government is a behemoth and it moves at a glacial pace. But when there are solutions available, that doesn't have to rock the world, doesn't have to be earth-shattering moves made for procurement offices to make things easier, to get repairs done in a timely fashion. Because we all know what happens. Uh, Something breaks, you don't get it done in time, it could lead to some other maintenance failure that could have been avoided in the first place. So, anyway. You know, 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 the reason why everything happens in government is too many bosses. My boss got a boss, and his boss got a boss, and his boss got a boss. Yeah, isn't that the truth? We're yeah. pretty the the bloat in mid management for governments around the country is un, is unbelievable, really. Yeah, I will say though that I got I mean, I've been. My bosses are great to me. I mean, I'm well. I feel well respected and and well appreciated around where I'm working, but. It's just gotten to the point where I got too much on my hands, and it makes me feel like I'm not getting enough done. Richard, I appreciate making time and painting a clear picture for what you're dealing with in Labrador, and I wish you good luck. All the best in Boise's Bay. All right. Thanks, man. Take good care of yourself. Right on. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Boy, uh, let's go. Line number two. Barry, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. Patty, I'd like to talk about the uh, river guardians. I see uh, guardians who look after the salmon on the uh, on the rivers in the summertime. Yep. As you know, Patty, last year we had a, a few uh, debates about it, and uh Towards the end of the summer, with uh, with no uh, end in sight, all of a sudden, uh, DFO Minister Murray comes out and makes the announcement that she's going to uh, keep the half the river guardians, which is approximately about 40 of them, uh, hired on for approximately four extra weeks, which is half of what we wanted. So we take that as a big win, Patty. Mm-hmm. However, here we are now getting ready to start the 23 season, and no sound of hide or anything of the uh, river guardians or what's going to entail for the summer. Um, 
towards the end of the summer last year, there was no response until all of a sudden, like I say, Minister Murray comes out and makes this announcement that she's going to keep him hard on. It's a wonderful thing. We believe in it, et cetera, et cetera. But here we are now, Patty, in the spring, getting ready for another season and not a sound. And, Patty, people say that, um, well, you know, it takes a while to do. Well, I would respond to that, Patty, say to snap your fingers. How long did that take? That's about how long the minister took to make that decision to to keep the uh, extra river guardian hired on. And we believe, myself and Paul White are starting to lobby again, we believe that they should be uh, hired on for a long period of time what we were talking about last year to uh, maintain and survey and everything else uh, keep a vigilant watch on the uh, salmon in the rivers. Yeah, it's a federal contract led to a private operation. I think the value of it last year before there was an extension was $5 million. So if we're talking about numbers of guardians, length of time they'll be on the river. It's simply a matter of adjusting the, the total of the contract. I mean, it should not be any more complicated than that. Absolutely, Patty. Absolutely, it should not be any more complicated than that. But, it, you know, it's, it, the wheels of government, I guess, are slow to grind, but uh, it, that, should not be, that should not be an excuse, Patty. It should not be an excuse. So we, uh, we sent an email to um, Ken McDonald, the Liberal MP, who we've been dealing with, and uh, that was, uh, I guess, about a month, maybe two months ago, and haven't heard a sound other than uh, a, a reply from an email saying we're going to be looking at taking your, uh, uh, your email into account. And uh, that's about it. So uh, I think that, you know, it's time that the ball sets need to be rolling. And they should have had enough time now since last year to realize that after Minister Murray came out and, and re- recognize that the River Guardians are an important program, they should have, be, have started the, uh, the, the necessary uh, steps to implement to get the River Guardians hired on for a longer period of time to protect our, our, our salmon and our fishery resources. And we'd like to see them hired on actually in the first May to the end of October, possibly even into, into November. I wonder if, you know, the poachers are obviously nuisances, but they're not fools. They know when the guardians go away. They know when their opportunity to be unsupervised and no one looking at them or what they're doing. And so consequently, it'd be really interesting to know, and I know there's no way to come up with any firm numbers here, just how prevalent poaching would be when they know full well, well, the guardian contract is up, so off I go. And you know full well it's got to be the most popular time of the year for the poachers. Well said, Patty. And uh, just uh, just a little bit of hearsay to that, Patty. And uh, it's not confirmed, but I heard, I heard that at last year there were a couple of poachers that didn't read the papers and about the extension of the uh, of the River Guardians, and they got popped there by River Guardians in just after <laughs> the the regular season closed. Okay. So, you know, kudos on, on them, uh, you know, but it is an, a very important program. And especially now, Patty, especially with the uh, with all the uh, predators, such as such as the seals in the in the in the river mouth waiting for the salmon and, and the trout and everything else to come in so they can feast on them. And that's another issue, Patty, that's got to be dealt with is what's going to happen there. There's got to be some kind of some kind of thing uh, or program instituted to protect the salmon coming into the uh, rivers and and the smoke going out because the smoke going out, which is the uh, the young adult salmon going out to sea for a couple of years, if t- there's a problem with the smoke, what's happening with them? Well, that could very well be the problem. And I'm not looking at put, you know put, pinning the the put making the seal a scapegoat. I'm just it's talking about real issues that are that need to be addressed. And uh, if they, you know the, the seals are there waiting and they're being observed feeding on salmon and, and trout, et cetera. So you know there's a host of things that DFO needs to do. Not even talk about the agriculture industry, Patty. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, fair enough. The harbour seals are becoming a bigger and bigger nuisance year over year, and returns on the salmon rivers are extremely concerning. You know, rivers where we used to see hundreds or thousands of salmon return, we're getting double digits. I mean, there's something patently wrong there. Uh, before we run out of time, you want to say something quick about moose licences? Yes, I heard uh, Mr. Eugene Nippert on yesterday, uh, representing Zopac, I guess. Uh, he, he, uh, no, it's, he, he seems to think that the outfitters are the problem, and I'm not picking up for the outfitters, Patty, but uh, basically the outfitters are in flying country where, where whatever the population of moose is, is pretty well going to be staying in there for the most part. Um what what SOPAC needs to concentrate on, and as well now, the moose vehicle collisions are at an all-time low, and I'm not, Patty, I'm not minimalizing it, I'm not trivializing it, but I have nothing but respect for people who have been involved in a moose vehicle collision or have possibly have died from it. I've always said that. But, you know, and you and you were quick to point out yesterday about the success rate and about seeing the moose on the highway, which we don't do that. that that's not seen that much anymore. So if, you know, if SOPAC wants to take a stand, then from our, from our studies a couple of years ago, when we were talking about the moose field collisions, the moose field collisions and, uh, represent approximately 6% of highway accidents. But yet it garners so much attention because of the emotional factor that Mr. Nippard and others use. I would suggest to Mr. Nippard, as the caller said there a couple of years ago when I was on, uh, on the go radio with Ted Blake, that was in 2019, a gentleman came on and spoke on the radio and said that this new field collision is not a problem for wildlife to solve. It's a problem for the Department of Transport and Highways to solve because it's a highway thing. Fair enough. Uh, I appreciate the time, Sroni and Barry. We'll keep an eye on what the River Guardian issue looks like this year. Thank you, Paddy. It's always been a pleasure. My pleasure, sir. Take good care. All right, bye-bye. Uh, very quickly before we get to this break, also nominated for Atlantic Book Award uh, from Boulder Books, Food, Culture, Place, Stories, Traditions, and Recipes of Newfoundland by Laurie McCarthy and Marsha Tull. Congratulations to them as well. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about the inshore fishery and then Dr. James Ustase and talk about chronic disease management audits. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the program. Uh, I think I mispronounced the gentleman's name going into the break, but let's go to line number five. Say good morning to Dr. James Westheisen. Good morning, Dr. Westheisen. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. When I see your surname written out, I'm only familiar with that name uh, coming from South African golfer Louis Oosthuizen, so my apologies on the mispronunciation. No, no, that's no problem. Yeah, most of my patients know me as Dr. Hein simply because no one can say my last name right. <laughs> How did I do with Westheisen? No, well, you did okay. It's Westheisen is, is the right name. Westheisen. Right, I mean, West yeah. Very well. Yeah. So how are you doing today? I'm doing great, sir. How about yourself? I'm doing okay. I, I have a bit of a problem. I have a huge problem, actually. And I'm coming. I, I have nowhere to turn to. Um, you know, I think I've exhausted every avenue that I've tried to turn to because, I mean, my story is so ludic ludicrous that I don't think anyone wants to touch it. So I'm kind of forced to come to the, the, you know, the voices of the fine people of Newfoundland and Labrador um, because I think um, they might be able to help me with the issues that I'm having. Now, just as a background, I just want 
want to give you a little bit, bit, bit of background what they do. Um, I've been in the office every single day since the pandemic started. I never missed a day. Um, and I also, after office hours, I do home visits. I started offering home visits on my patients who you were too fearful to leave their home. So I'm in the office every day, and I do home visits in the nighttime. I usually work about 12 hours a day. Okay. And that's here in this province, sir? That is here in St. John's. My, my, my practice is in St. John's. Okay. In the West End. Okay. Um, so I, there's a bit of an issue with the MCP audits with that, and then I think it's simply because of the hours of work that I do. But today, I mean, I can come back to you. I have a lot of stories I can tell you that will make the, the hair in your neck raise. But what I want to talk to you about today is specifically chronic disease management. Um, and I actually, um, while I'm talking, if there's any of my patients that are listening, I just want them all to know that if any one of you ever got a letter from MCP audits, um, whatever you said in that letter didn't matter because I never get, got paid for those for, for those visits. They will they will adjust the claims and just adjust it to a lower level and pay me for that regardless of what my patients have to say. They don't call me. They don't talk to the patients. They just pay whatever they feel they should. Okay. Um, I want my patients to, if, if, if anyone is out there listening in Newfoundland and Labrador, I want you to get a pen and a piece of paper ready because I'm going to give you some information um, and it's something that I'm going to ask of you. Now, just to explain to you, when, I'm, when a when a patient comes into the office and you do a partial assessment, you bill a one-to-one code, right? And that is for someone can have an ingrown toenail or they can have a blood pressure check or a sore throat or whatever it is. You, you spend a couple of minutes with someone, you bill a one-to-one code, and I get paid $32 for that service. If a doctor does a, a virtual visit on a patient, you know, which is usually could be anywhere from 90 seconds to three minutes or four minutes or five minutes, but it's usually not 15 minutes, the doctor will get paid $42. So you get paid 30% more for doing a virtual visit than you do for doing a partial assessment of a patient in the office. Now, there's something that is called chronic disease management. And what that means is that um, if a patient comes into my office and I spend 15 minutes with the patient and, and, and I notate, uh, make a note on my documents that I spend 15 minutes with the patient and it's some things like you know, chronic obstructive lung, lung disease, it could be any kind of cancer, it could be inflammatory bowel disease, um, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, it could be um, chronic liver disease, congestive heart failure, diabetes, um, any kind of mental health, different mental health issues, chronic neurological disease, ischemic heart disease, there's a whole bunch of things that you can do. So I will spend 15 minutes with my patient, and instead of a one-to-one code, I will build a one-to-seven. So what that does, it gives me an extra $15. So instead of $32, I will get paid $47, which incidentally is 5 or $6 more than uh, a telephone call visit. Now, right now, I'm getting audited every single day of my life. I do probably less than two, but at least one chronic disease management, which I spend 15 minutes with a patient in my office. I'll build a one to seven code, which is $6 more, $7 more than a, than a phone call visit. And I think that a chronic disease management, when you spend 15 minutes with a patient in the office, is better than any phone call visit. So sure, what happens inside the audit? Like what exactly goes on? Um, what, what, what they'll do, so I'll build a one to seven code. If I, so I saw someone this morning, and I won't name any names or anything, but someone's getting divorced and the husband left and whatever, so I spend probably 30 minutes with, with someone in the office. Now, I will, not spe- I, I will build a, a, a one to seven code, which is a 15 minute visit, even though I spend 30 or 40 or 50 minutes with someone. And, and I've had patients tell me, you should build two or three of these things. I say, but I can't do that. I can only build one. But so you know, I'm telling all my patients that I will get audited on this. What they'll do, they'll flag it. 
at MCP audits. And by the way, no one who works in the MCP audit office are doctors, but they will flag it. They will take off the um, the seventeen dollars, so they'll change it from a one to seven to one to one code, even though I spend fifteen minutes with someone. So I won't get paid for it. And on top of that, I will get flagged for wrongful billing, which means they will audit me every single day. And that's what now most doctors get one audit probably every three months. I've had I've, I have a stack here next to my secretary. I've had more than two hundred and forty audits in the last twenty four months. So apparently I'm this big criminal, right? You know, and what I'm doing, I'm working 12 hours a day. I'm seeing patients in the office every day, and I also do home visits every single day. Now, this, that will be another conversation because I, have, I was made to change the way I practice medicine by MCP audit. I'm not practicing medicine the way that I think it should be done or my patients or for the benefit of my patients. I'm doing it to, to keep MCP audits happy. And I think that's absolutely completely wrong, but there's absolutely nothing that I can do about that. And what I need the, that the people of Newfoundland and Labrador to, to know is that there is a code for a doctor to spend 15 minutes with you if he deems necessary, right? You can spend 15 minutes with you, you can bill a one to seven code, and you'll get paid five or six hours more than a telephone visit, right? But people have to understand that, that my degree in medicine from a university and my 20 or 30 years of practice experience, in my case 30 years, does not give me the right or the authority to make a decision to spend 15 minutes with a patient. However, what you've got to do as a patient, and I'll give you the numbers, and if people have a pen and paper ready, what they have to do, they have to call MCP audits, and no one there, by the way, is a doctor, but you have to call MCP audits, you have to ask them permission for you to go back to your doctor so your doctor can spend 15 minutes with you. Because if you don't do that, your doctor is going to get audited and he's going to make you feel like a criminal. And so what's the outcome of these 240 audits that you have sitting alongside? So do you get a fine or is there a formal oh, investigation? No, uh, what's the implication? No, what they do is they'll just take off the fee. They'll adjust the claim. What they'll do, so it's not fraudulent billing. They'll adjust the claim. They'll take it from a 1 to 7 and they, and they um, um, adjust the claim back to a 1 to 1 and they pay me $32, even though I spent 15 minutes with someone in the office and did chronic disease management. So I will get paid for it, but I'll get paid at a lower rate. The other thing I get audited on, but that's another conversation, is home visits. If, some, if I do a non-elective home visit where a patient calls me to come see them at home. Um, now, on a date, I'm elective and non-elective. I won't get into that now, but uh, uh, before 6 p.m., it pays the same fee. After 6 p.m., between 6 p.m. and midnight, if I go get in my car and go to someone's house and they ask me to come see them, I can bill $25 extra, right, for me to get in my car to go to someone's house between 6 and 12 midnight. I get 20, but I will get audited. They will take off the $25 and flag me for unfilled billing for, for that extra $25 because I'm working after hours. It's so bizarre. Uh, not no. really sure what to make of this. Just in, in broad strokes, as opposed to simply about the audit, inside what you can label as chronic disease, does it simply mean something that is, it takes a year or more ongoing medical attention for it to be deemed a chronic illness? Like, for instance, is asthma or arthritis or psoriasis, are these chronic diseases? Yes, they will be. Like, an, like chronic obstructive lung disease, if you have like an COPD and you have emphysema that changes, you've had asthma for a long time and it's caused lung damage to you over a period of time, that will be considered a chronic disease management. But like I said, I have to, I like, can write down my notes that I spend 15 minutes. And all my notes are correct. I write down 15 minutes. But I don't get called by MCP audits. They don't talk to me. They don't talk to my patient. They just adjust the claim simply because of the fact that I believe it's because I work 12 hours a day. I work a lot of hours. Uh, my billings are probably higher than the average. Um, and that's why I'm getting audited. But there are certain things that have said to me. Let's get back to something like home visits. I was told by someone at MCP audits, and I'm not making this up, and that's why I'm saying that this is, this, this is how ridiculous this has become. 
I was told by someone at MCP Audits at one point in time, he said to me, the records show that you see a lot of older people at home. And I said, yeah, probably 90% of people I see at home are older than 75. And that's what he said to me. He said, you should just leave them alone. You should just let them be. I mean, I mean, I'm a family doctor. I, 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 you know, I practice primary preventative medicine. I go and try and see people at home to try and identify an issue and prevent it from turning into something serious. I was told that home visits are for emergencies only, which, which is ridiculous because, you know, once someone has a heart attack or a stroke and you're lying on the floor, there's no point calling me. You need an ambulance. You need to get to a hospital. However, if I can get to someone's house before something happens and I can identify an issue, and that's what I do, I can postpone an outcome or prevent it from turning into something that's an emergency. That's why I do what I do. Now, <clears throat> a lot of the other things I do, I do, I do mental health issues on, on some people. I see people in their 90s um, that I do home visits on, and the only person that they see is me. The only face that they see is me. I go in there and make sure that they take their medications and that they eat and they drink. Sometimes people sit in a chair, you know, for two or three days at a time because they feel too sick to get out of the chair to walk 10 feet to go to, to a, you know, to a tap to get a drink of water. I try and manage these things. That's what I do. That is what primary preventative medicine is. Um, I'm probably the hard-working family physician in this province, and I've been absolutely tortured and harassed by this MCP audit system and other systems that, that I won't get into you right now. Uh, Dr. Westhazen, so you want your patients to do exactly what? Okay. So this is what I want. If people have a phone number, uh, a pen and piece of paper, I want you to sort of write down these phone numbers that I'm going to give you. And these are the numbers for MCP audits in Newfoundland and Labrador. They have a local number, and the number is 758-1566. I'll repeat that again, 758-1566. There's also a 1-800 number if you're further away from St. John's. You can call one 800 563 4199. I'll repeat that again. 1-800-563-4199. Now, this is what I want people to agree because I have no power over this. I do, it's absolutely nothing I can do. I've reached out to a couple of institutions, um, physician institutions. I don't want to get into a, into a uh, war of words with these people because I'm just trying to get you know the thing straightened out. But they've told me that they can't help me because MCP audits are a government institution and they do have absolute power. Right? They can wield absolute power, and there's nothing that I can say or do about it. I've also reached out to a couple of government officials, which I won't name their names, and they haven't even responded to me. I've reached out to CBC NL Investigate, who've ignored me, and I've reached out to... Uh, well, anyway, I've got to leave it at that. Okay. Um, so what I want to do... So I want patients of Newfoundland and Labrador. This is what you have to do. Uh, those numbers that I gave you, I want the, the patient... If you want to preserve a service for a physician to spend 15 minutes with you in chronic disease management, because otherwise... I'm going to have to give up doing that. I'm going to have to tell people I can't spend 15 minutes with you. You have to go to the emergency department and sit there for 8 or 10 hours and get someone there to spend time with you because I'm apparently not allowed. I don't have the authority to do that. So you have to call. But I want people to do is call MCP audit. Right. You call them back 120 times until they answer the phone. Um, or if they have a message manager, this is what you say to them. You give them your name and you give them your doctor's name. And you ask them to call back your doctor. Um, the doctor's office and give your doctor permission that he can spend 15 minutes with you if he deems necessary. Now, I'm not saying that every doctor should spend 15 minutes with the patients because doctors have different ways they practice medicine. But if your doctor f deems necessary to do that, he should be able to have the right to spend 15 minutes with you. For sure. Personally, personally I think they should expand the service and encourage people to spend 15 minutes with patients. But anyway, so... 
What's going to happen yet? I, I don't think they will call the doctor's offices back. So you wait 72 hours, call your doctor's office, ask them if MCP audits called them and gave them permission to talk to you for, or to spend 15 minutes with you. And if they didn't do that, then you need to call them back another 150 times until you get a hold of them. If they have, however, if they change the phone number, which they probably will do if, if 10 or 20,000 people in Newfoundland call them, if they change the phone number, this is what you got to do. You call your MHA and tell him that you have a right as a patient in Newfoundland for a doctor to spend 15 minutes to spend with you understood if it deems necessary and for the MHA to give you the right phone number because otherwise I'm, I, I'm being made to feel like a criminal for, to, for spending 15 minutes with a patient once or twice a day Dr. West Hazen hopefully your message has been heard and they'll take up the call to make said call I appreciate your time sir keep us in the loop if anything changes I appreciate your time sir sorry for the big long spiel it's okay thank you thank you kindly take care bye bye that's Dr. West Hazen James West Hazen that's an obviously bizarre problem uh, let's go ahead and take a break when we come back Pamela Patton, she's the president of CNL. They've got a petition circulating about what we'll find out. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Sheila. You're on the air. Good good morning, Patty. Uh, I just wanted to bring uh, to attention you and your listeners that uh, my brother-in-law, Don Hutchings, who was a frequent caller caller to your show all the time, he uh, always uh, talked about the salmon fishing and hook and release and he had passed away. I'm sorry to hear that. When I saw your call in the queue, Dave Williams came in and told me that he had seen it in the paper. So I'm sorry to hear that because we had many conversations with Don. Oh, and, and Don really liked calling into your show all the time. And I'm sure all your listeners missed him and certainly missed the calling on the salmon and the, and the fishing and everything all the time because he gave out wonderful points. And he just finished his book on uh, getting hooked. Is that right? And so is it going yes. to, it's, it's been published or? Yes, it is. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If you don't mind me asking, Sheila, what happened? Well, he, he's been dealing with cancer now for the past three years. Oh, my goodness. I didn't know. Yes, and, and, and happy to say that he got his uh, last salmon fishing in the past year, right? He done his last one, and he got a salmon. <laughs> well, good for him. I'm really sorry to hear of his passing. And so my condolences to his friends and certainly all of his family, including you, Sheila. Yes, yes. We were all so sad because he was a wonderful man. He sounded it. I enjoyed speaking with him, I have to say. Yes, I must say. And that man that just called in about all the salmon and the fishing, if, if Don had been here, he would have answered a lot of his questions. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> Sheila, yeah. I'm sorry that the topic is what it is, but thank you very much for telling us about it. And once again, our condolences. Yes, thank you very much. Take good care of yourself. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs> Don Hutchins, frequent caller, no question. Uh, let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the president at CNL. That's Pamela Patton. Pamela, you're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. So I'm calling because CNL started a petition open to all Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. We're calling on the provincial government to hold public consultations as to why it's so hard to obtain fishing licenses in the province. And I just want to add, it's a paper petition as required by the House of Assembly, so the general public will have to print it and then mail it in. So Um, what, what does the petition say? Well, it's going to take a, it's a special mention into looking into the Professional Fish Harvesters Act in 1997. It's the act that governs the Professional Fish Harvesters Certification Board over professionalizing the inshore fishery. Now, it's not looking into the job they've done. They've done an awesome job, you know, um, doing so. And obviously, the safety training and, and stuff required is on point. However, there seems to be some rules that uh, look like they expired with a lot of the fisheries. 
um, one of the ones that's being brought to our attention the most is the policy um, that is uh, relative to this five-year uh, 75% income solely from fisheries if you were trying to level up. It doesn't apply to anyone if you were going to stay an apprentice or if you're at level one, level two or whatever. <clears throat> I'm sorry, level two would probably be it. Um, it wouldn't be relative, but it seems to be impacting the people trying to get into the fishery. And the reason I'd say that's kind of expired and should be reviewed is the simple fact that our fishery isn't what it was. Um, I attended an outreach meeting to a DFO in which Mark Dollaman from the certification board had mentioned, you know, respectively in areas you can get a solid five months of fishing. That doesn't seem to be the way anymore. Um, <clears throat> we solely seem to have shifted some pelagics more into shellfish. Um, fisheries have been cut, whether it be quotas or, or, or no markets or whatever. So to expect people today with the cost of living to rely on um, fishing, and that would again be relative to, to your area and what's available to fish, and solely fishing for five years, it's, it's nearly impossible. So are there just fundamental changes or fundamental parts of the process that have to be backed out? Because I, I would imagine at some point there was someone thought that they were necessary for the transfers or what have you. So what are you suggesting be done? <clears throat> well, I think they have to review it now. I mean, you're taking when these rules were put in place so many years ago, um, and, and I'll just use my area as, as a perspective, really. Uh, I met my husband 23 years ago. Um, in 3PS, the fishery kind of started in March um, and carried you right up till December. You know, you, you had ample ponds. If you were making a living, albeit, you know, nobody got rich, but you had an income for most of the year. I mean, there was herring, <clears throat> sorry, available in March. You would roll into the crab that used to respectively open around the 1st of April. Uh, lobsters opening mid-April. Um, more to the end. Uh, you go from lobsters into scallop or whelk, uh, some pelagics, and then you'd have your fall cod fishery. You had a full-on fishery. We don't have that today. So to expect somebody, you know, trying to level up or, or get to own an enterprise, get to be level two where they can own an enterprise, that's not really an option today. So uh, we don't know what the answer is, um, but that's why we're asking the government to meet with the public and ask what can be done, um, what's actually created this problem, right? Okay, so where can people find the petition? It's on the CNL webpage, and again, because of the House of Assembly, it's a paper petition, so people would have to print it and then mail it in. Yes, that's right, because it's something done online. They cannot table it inside the House of Assembly, so I was kind of wondering how, how that process was going to be addressed. Okay, so that's good news. Yes, yes. Pamela, I appreciate the time. Anything else you want to say before we take a break for the news? No, that's, that's good. Appreciate this. Good luck. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. It's Pamela Patton. She's the president at CNL. That's long been a concern of the inshore harvester. Uh, anyway, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're talking about something that's happening on the Killick Coast, and then plenty of time to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Brian, you're on the air. Good morning, Polly. How are you? Not too bad this morning. How about you? Oh, pretty good. So the Sonica Farms is about to begin, eh? Let's go. Your team and my team didn't do very well. I don't know if if uh, who got the first pick. 
but this guy Bernard is certainly making a name for himself, isn't he? Well, he's the absolute number one pick coming up in the next draft. No question about that. He's lighting it up. I mean, he looks like the real deal. He's got a big professional shot as a junior player. So I think whoever gets him, that's one of those transformational guys, I think. Yeah. Uh, friends of mine, oh, Wes, say, you know, home taste like Prince Albert. When he comes to town, you can't buy a ticket. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Know. No doubt. Yeah, he plays hey, with Regina. What I'm falling for, there's an advertisement on television, and usually I don't look at uh, ads, but it's the one by, uh, and it concerns Colbert, and that's something that you can use to f- test yourself to find out if you got a colon cancer, I guess. Okay. And uh, it's, 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 I don't know if you've seen it, Patty. It's on Canadian television, and it's done to the um, it's done to the music and the song of "My Way" by Frank Sinatra. And Patty, you know, colon cancer is one of the biggest killers in Canada and across and across Newfoundland when it comes to cancer. And I know of people who died of colon cancer. I know of families who lost loved ones because of colon cancer. And I don't really think it's something you should be on singing my way about. And I'm just very turned off by the ad. It's that that's insensitive. And uh, the people who put it on, I don't know if they've ever lost anyone to anything. But I, believe, I I don't like that ad. When it comes on the television, I turn it off like I turn off politicians. And that's what I just want to say, that sometimes when you put together an ad, sometimes it's so insensitive, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. So that's my beef for this morning. Doctors actually warn about that test, uh, as a matter of fact. Um, but, of course, Colaguard would have signed off on the ad. The marketing company or the ad agency, they simply would have come up with concepts and run them by focus groups and run them by the company. And the company uh, is the one who gets the final sign-off. Oh, yeah, well, they should rethink it. Remember, you know, there's people out there who are fighting against uh, colon cancer. Friends of mine have died of colon cancer, and I don't feel they're singing them my way about it. Uh, but again, that's 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 me. Uh, g- good day. Have a nice time looking at the Stanley Cup playoffs, and I'm sorry that Montreal didn't do well, but they did better than Chicago. But neither one of them could win the Stanley Cup. Yeah, no. La- interestingly, last night was the very last game in the Chicago Blackhawk uniform for Jonathan Taves, their longtime captain. After 16 years, they're not going to resign him. So. Oh, it's- Right. Yeah. Now, I mean, when Taves and Kane got drafted in back-to-back years, the Blackhawks were in terrible shape. They had a terrible team. The city had given up on them. The uh, attendance had fallen through the floor. And then all of a sudden, they bring in those two superstars. Three Stanley Cups later, Kane, of course, moved on. He got traded to the Rangers for their cup run, even though I think they might come up uh, a solid against uh, the Devils. I think the Devils are going to beat the Rangers. But that's it for Taves as a Blackhawk. Well, you know, in a way, Paddy, it was because of, of Kane and Tate that Chicago went downhill. They won two Stanley Cups. They signed these two guys to, as far as hockey is concerned, really, I mean, t- 
$10 million each season. That's on the block of the drain right there. Well, I suppose they were going to get that kind of money somewhere because they were the two guys, adding, you know, Duncan Keith and a couple other players yeah. that led them to the glory land or the promised land of winning the cup. So I think the boys, if we're measuring success by uh, cup victories and those two lads, they were certainly the backbone of those three Stanley Cup teams in Chicago. I appreciate the well, time, I, Brian. I, I better I better pack my bags and go out into the desert because that's what Chicago is going to be. Unless they get Kane, because they're in the running, you know. The, the, yeah. I think you have to. Well, the, all the odds are out there for the lottery about who has the best chance. So between yeah. uh, Chicago's down there and Columbus is down there, and the who uh, not Florida. Uh, there's a couple other teams that are have a really good shot at them. I'm sure they're chomping at the bit to stand there and see how they're drafted. Regina Pats forward Connor Bedard. Good to have you on, Brian. Thanks a lot, Paddy. Take care. Bye now. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's go to line number two. Catherine, you're on the air. Oh, hi there. Hi. Uh, and uh, thank you. Uh, I'm calling. I've got a different hat on today than my usual one, but I've been involved with working with the Killick Coast Agriculture Committee that is uh, working to uh, encourage food self-sufficiency in the province and also to recognize the, the value of the agricultural land that we have. And we're having our very first um, workshop, a pop-up workshop for spring. We're going to hold it at the um, uh, Flat Rock Community Center this coming Sunday from 1 to 4. It's free. And we have a great lineup of uh, subjects to talk about. We're going to start with um, talking about the amount of food that's actually already being produced in backyard gardens and community gardens, as well as the the rest of the um, commercial farmers. Um, We're going to have presentations on how you can get hold of a community garden in one of the seven communities in the Killick Coast. That's, you know, places like um, Flat Rock and Torbay and everywhere, as well as Portugal Cove, St. Philip's, Balleen. Um, we're going to talk about composting, two ways. One, how to do a good job in your own backyard, um, but also that some communities are starting to gather compost and build a compost together so that you don't have to worry about it in your own yard. Let's pick at these just one at a time, uh, briefly even. So with the uh, data that's going to be shared about how much is grown and produced here, is that as a result of the Food Producers Forum survey? Yes, it so is. So that's Dan Rubin's work and his team. That's right. Okay. Yeah. And um, we're excited. He's already done a presentation, a couple of presentations on it, but we think that we're going to get people at our group who haven't heard about it as yet and and it's exciting it's the beginning when you do a, when you do a survey like that the first year is one thing you go oh wow but by the time you've done the survey and more people start filling it out over three or four or five years you can see if you're moving with more people growing stuff or how the season was and all sorts of things that'll um, you know help us understand and appreciate the food that we're producing here Absolutely, yeah, because a lot of that data had not been captured. We were basically relying on farming numbers as opposed to homesteading, backyard farms, and otherwise. So that's an important bit exactly. of data to, 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 yeah. to consider. 
Exactly. And that's why we're interested in encouraging people to regain or learn the skills that our parents and grandparents had. Um, And I can tell you, I've been at it for a good 20 years now, and I only feel I'm getting good now (laughs) at um, a lot of the uh, techniques that uh, help so that, you know, it, it, it's a good. It's just. It, it's a good thing. It's good for your health just to be outside and digging in the dirt too. Um, we're going to have a presentation on the starting of seedlings um, from Murray's Gardens is coming in, um, and Ross Travers is going to be there to have a question and answer session, and then finally Sean Dawson from the Barking Kettle. Um, he's a forager, and he's going to talk about, um, you know, other food that's around um, in our backyards already. So uh, it's all free. Ross is awesome. I mean, you get a chance. Even just that uh, opportunity for Q&A with Ross is worth the free admission, uh, no doubt. <laughs> uh, Catherine, quick comment on composting. It, yeah. In some places, it's uber popular, and it's obviously very helpful. The one worry that people speak about all the time is rodents and the compost bin. Even though yeah. there's, you know, some of the new, newly designed compost bins really do a good job of eliminating or alleviating yeah. that concern. But what do you say to folks who say, I don't want to do that because I don't want rats in my backyard? Well, that's where the community composting idea that uh, Vivienne from Planet Consulting will be talking to. Um, there's there's other ways to compost as well. And uh, I think we're going to have a draw for one of the rotating barrels that are up on a stand as opposed to sitting in a plastic bin on the ground. This um, is donated by the Flat Rock uh, Town Council. And um, the reason for those is because there's way less chance of rats or um, getting into them. Uh, and uh, they process the compost more quickly because the turning allows it to heat up. A properly managed compost gets extremely warm and uh, doesn't attract rats. Now, I will tell you that I have my compost pile is way, I'm lucky, I've got a lot of land and I've got it way up at the top of the garden, way far away from the house and from anybody else. And so it works its way and I get good soil out of it and uh, I would expect that there might be an animal or two but if you can keep the meat products and things like that out of the compost it usually is pretty good Um, but I agree people have a fear of rats even if they want to live down by the ocean and uh, along the uh, edge of town in St. John's, you know, you're bound to have rats when you're on the edge of a harbor. No question. And, you know, unfortunately, we have a rodent issue in this city, which is makes my skin crawl, to be honest. Uh, so this is great. You know, backyard farming, homesteading and the like is obviously becoming more and more popular, not because of the mental health positive uh, side to it, but also simply with the price of everything, people are turning to this. And municipalities have to wrap their mind around it because it's not just root vegetables and the like. I mean, people keeping chickens and all the rest of it. So there's going to be more and more people as the years go by that turn to backyard farming or homesteading, however people like to refer to it. 
Well, exactly. And uh, I can tell you that at one point I had enough garlic every year to get me through the year. So I guess I could say I was self-sufficient in garlic. And this year in my cold room, I have apples from the fall. In my freezer, I have tomatoes and um, raspberries, blueberries, strawberries. Um, I've still got my own potatoes. I've still got parsnips, and I'm teaching my husband to like them. Um, And I've got carrots and uh, beets and red onions. And that's a lot of food, you know. Um, It means that I'm buying buying, uh, some lettuce and green stuff, but uh, I um, I had my own green beans up until uh, February, you know. So um, it it is a good way to save some money. And we're looking with this agricultural committee at ways that we can share excess food that's produced through food banks, which are suffering, and uh, other ways. And how can we encourage young people to um, maybe come and dig some of my land and have a have a plot of their own there even because we're getting older I wouldn't mind letting someone come for for uh, to use a piece of land if they'd help me with some of the hard work that I'm not quite as capable of doing Catherine give the folks the where the when one more time Okay, it's going to be at the Flat Rock Community Centre. we got a big billboard out front uh, from 1 to 4 on Sunday afternoon. I appreciate your time. Good luck with it. Let us know how it goes. Thank you very much. And uh, maybe we'll see you if you decide to pick up a spade. (laughs) Thank you, Catherine. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye. All right, uh, before we get to the break, uh, sad loss in the hockey world here in the province. A fellow who's been the first and only general manager of the CBR Renegades uh, Junior Hockey Club has passed away. His name is Stephen Gillard. Stephen was deeply involved with hockey for a long time and a relatively young man. It's a sad loss to all who knew him and his family. So our condolences on the passing of Stephen Gillard. Let's take a break. When we come back, lots of time for you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, Bill, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. Lovely morning, guys. Uh, not too bad. It's a little bit grey and damp here in town, but say levy. Yeah, nothing falling, not blowing too hard. It's just a good day in my books. I'll take it. <laughs> I wanted to call in and tell you about the lovely cancers we saw last night's uh, home tables at the uh, Lifestyle Centre Navigators and uh, Jordan Harnham opened up for them. It's uh, a grand show, but I tell you, really, really got, uh, got a good group there. I love the Navigators, and I mean, of course, uh, out in Bay Bulls, Arthur O'Brien, front man, is a Bay Bulls boy. Yeah, I grew up just out the road from them. Okay, very good. Yeah, it's uh, a fantastic show by the uh, and and uh, the bit of carrying on with with the audience and that's they really had a, a lovely show by and uh, you know uh, had you laughing and a few hands up dancing and bring it here to your eye and with some songs and uh, well actually Freddie had me crying at one time he was uh, I won't say what he was doing but he had me laughing at her I was I was crying. <laughs> well, and Fred is of course Fred Jorgensen. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, one of a kind, no doubt about that. Yeah, is he ever? So, and very distinctive voice. You don't have to think oh. twice when it's uh, uh, Fred Jorgensen singing. No, that's for sure. Right from the first 
syllable comes out of his mouth and you can you, you know it right away who it is and you're inclined to turn up the radio a little bit louder you know yeah i know arthur a fair bit or pretty well and he's a good guy but i really like arthur so what are some of the songs that you love by the navigators or the ones that they perform uh like they played a few uh, a few new ones this arthur wrote uh, um one, well, one about Babel's itself, and uh, one about with the one from uh, uh, down Pity Harbour. You know, those those are two that are really, really nice. And they had to do a great version of uh, Little Hand of Fifty. Yes, uh, and really, did, really comical one. Did Arthur tell you the story about someone sent him a Hand of Fifty? Yes, uh, yeah, and he had it there last night. No, no. He had it on the stage with him, and then he had uh, uh, he had it rigged up for to get pictures. It was after he put it on the put it up on their Facebook uh, page to be entered to win a prize and everything. But foolish and that sack, I tell you. But like I said, that Arthur's, you know, I know him since I was a, a child. He's just a couple years older than me, and uh, you know, fine. He was always uh, always a fine fellow. Well, the whole the whole family is nice people, you know, and. He uh, done a lot for the community, and you know Arthur and Khan certainly are still doing a lot to to make people make people happy. And of course, Khan O'Brien is frontman for the Irish Descendants. Yeah, Arthur told me that story when I ran into him not long ago. The crowd from Honda actually sent him the Honda Fifty. And, yes. And I suggested that he do like what the uh, Killer Dwarfs did with their little tricycle on stage. He'd bring the Honda <laughs> yeah. Fifty on stage, and so they did it. That's great. <laughs> oh yeah, no, but it's worth a million dollars to go see. I, I certainly encourage anyone to go, uh, to go uh, pick up a ticket and, and take it in. Right? Do you a world of good. Um, I think we're in Clarenville tonight. I know the end on the 5th of May at the Bella Vista. That's I mean, right. Anyone that's, they're going across the island again now. It's the second leg of their tour. And uh, anyone at all that can get out to it by go for, you know, does it do your heart good? Well, they've been going for 20-plus years anyway. And yep. they've had some great successes, and they deserve it. Uh, I'm glad you enjoyed the show, Bill, and I appreciate the call. All right. Have a good weekend. You too, buddy. All the best. Take care, Steve. Bye-bye. All right, there we go. That's good. Uh, line number two. Megan, you're on the air. Hi there, Patty. You and I chatted a few days ago about um, the elderly woman who was arrested for the minor vandalism. Yes, that's right. I just wanted to give you a bit of a follow-up. Okay. There is a petition going around uh, in support of her. Her name is Marjorie. Uh, as she does have a court date. I think it's May 23rd. So local business owner named Jen, who owns the Seahorse Salon on Harvey Road, uh, is starting a petition of you know local residents that are interested in, in supporting her. So people can contact Jen at the Seahorse Salon on Harvey Road if they'd like to lend their name to that petition. And what sort of help are we soliciting or people are offering? The idea is simply to provide, you know, some some people and advocacy. Um, you know, a person like Marjorie could lose her housing or different types of, of supports that she's receiving if she gets some kind of criminal record for this. I mean, she is reliant on funding from different bodies and... Um, you know, if you're tangled up in this world and you have uh, police involved or you get some kind of criminal background on you, uh, you know, she could be in jeopardy of losing these supports. So I don't know how far it'll go, but we're really just trying to show the courts and the police that Marjorie isn't by herself. And I'm sure uh, she will appreciate. Do you happen to know if she has any family? I think we may have discussed that. 
I don't. And like I said, I'm being cautious here that I'm not her family. I, I don't know her personally. I'm, I'm just a neighbor. Um, I don't know that part of it. Uh, I don't know if any of us do, but we know her name and we know that she needs some help. So contact Seahorse Salon if you want to try to put your name on it or find out more information from Jen, the owner there. Uh, But I think it's great that the community is saying, you know, we're paying attention and this woman just deserves a, a shot at living a healthy life. And maybe we should just offer the additional context that she was arrested with the kind of spray paint that she had sprayed on someone's window. And she's known in the area. And she's obviously, and I'm not to be not mean spirited, but she's obviously mentally unwell. And this was the reaction of the business owner and consequently the reaction of the police, as opposed to some of the other approaches that may indeed have been available here. Even though people know there's got to be some... You know, we can't have people spray painting people's businesses and the consequential cost of cleanup and what have you, but there are different ways to achieve the same goals. Uh, and, exactly. Yeah. yeah, you're absolutely right. There's a bit of a trigger-happy, uh, you know, response there, and there are different avenues and some sensitivity. But the bottom line is she's a senior citizen who has severe mental health issues, and she's quite known in the community, and different avenues should have been taken. It's too late. The police avenue was taken, and we're just trying to let people know that we hope that she gets uh, a fair fair deal. I appreciate the time, and if folks are interested, Harvey Road, the Seahorse, uh, the Seahorse? Seahorse Salon. Salon. Saloon. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate (laughs) the time, Megan. Thanks for this. Thanks, Patty. All right. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. uh, Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the National President of the Public Service Alliance of Canada, generally known as PSAC. That's Chris Aylward. Good morning, Chris. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. And uh, we are normally referred to as PSAC. (laughs) <laughs> PSAC it is that works for me so you we've been told that so you represent some nearly 124,000 employees and they voted overwhelmingly overwhelmingly to approve a strike mandate what does overwhelmingly mean can you translate that to a percentage for us I mean uh, it, it, it means that you know obviously the vast majority we do not release the uh, percentage numbers for our strike votes or ratification votes uh, but if this uh, strike mandate was to be uh, graded it would get an A plus uh, how long have you not had a contract in place? Uh, our members have been without a contract since June of 2021. Okay, and how did we arrive at this strike mandate vote? So what exactly is on the table of concern? Well, I mean, obviously, in this current con- economic context, uh, wages is number one. Uh, absolutely, that's that's the number one priority for this round of bargaining. Uh, look, I mean, our, our you know federal public sector workers are, are no different than anyone else uh, across this country. Everyone's feeling squeezed by uh, inflation, and workers right across the country are, are, are fed up. They're frustrated, and and rightfully so. They're sitting back watching uh, you know corporations make uh, record profits, uh, but nobody wants to pay the uh, employees. So it's time for workers in this country to stand up and, and say enough is enough because. Workers just can't keep falling further and further behind. So whether they're unionized, non-unionized, public sector, private sector, every worker in this country deserves a fair and decent uh, uh, raise in this current uh, context. Workers didn't cause inflation. We shouldn't have to uh, shoulder that burden. And what are the concerns with working conditions or being told to return to the office? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, that's that was obviously an issue uh, there back in December when uh, – when Treasury Board made that announcement, we said at the time that it was ill-advised and uh, very ill-timed 
uh, and and you know we're we're proven right uh, because the, that that so-called plan is, is nowhere near being implemented. They had an end of March uh, implementation date. It's not being implemented. Nobody really knows what's happening in the workplaces. The, the, the federal workplaces right now are very chaotic. Uh, so we want to make sure that we get something in our collective uh, agreement. We want to get language there so that everyone knows what the game rules are and that we have recourse. And I want to make it very clear. We're not asking that all of our members work at home five days a week. We're just saying if you want a hybrid uh, workplace policy, then let's put it in the collective agreement so that it's applied consistently and fairly right across the board. Prior to the pandemic, the workers would have been, by and large, working in an office setting. So if it was manageable then, why is it not manageable now? Well, I mean, last year in the 2022 federal budget, they identified, I think it was something like $36 billion in savings in the federal public service. And when they were asked, where are those savings coming from? The answer was, oh, it's because of remote work. We're going to shrink our, our footprint. Uh, we, we don't need all of these buildings. Uh, so, you know, on, on one hand, they're saying, oh, look, we're going to save all this money because workers are working from home. Uh, and then they turn around and say, no, now you have to come back into the workplace. Well, what about those savings that you, you had identified last year? What, what's going to happen to those now? So it, it just doesn't make in, any sense. Uh, our members have demonstrated uh, that they can work effectively and very productively from home. At the beginning of the pandemic in April of 2020, uh, you know, our, our members at the Canada Revenue Agency and Service Canada got the Canada Emergency Relief Benefit and the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy out the door in record time just when uh, Canadians needed it. Uh, so, you know, remote work, I mean, and, and when you look, a lot of employers are, are certainly uh, contemplating remote work because it, it's great for, uh, uh, you know, retention and, and attraction to your to your business. So. Uh, again, if the government wants a hybrid workplace, we need language in our collective agreement to make sure that our members' rights are protected and that any kind of a plan is implemented fairly and consistently. I don't think many workers in the country have seen their wages keep up with cost of living pressures, inflation or otherwise. So when we know, like for instance, in the most recent federal budget, a $40 billion deficit, $10 billion more than they thought, the cost to operate the government in excess of a one point, or $151 billion or something along those lines. So how do you square that circle? with the taxpayers' burden with the government, the, the amount that we pay in tax, the amount that we're probably going to have to pay more, or there are going to be other programs or services lost or cut if there are raises across the board for somewhere in the neighborhood of 155,000 employees represented by your group and another one. So how do you square that circling your messaging to the general public? Look, I mean, workers, as I said earlier, you know, workers just can't get being pushed down and pushed down and falling further and further and further uh, behind. Uh, some, something is going to give. So in the current context of, you know, the, the, the rising cost of living and, and the rate of inflation, if workers in this country don't start, you know, getting uh, wage increases that, that, that kind of keep up with uh, the rate of inflation, as I said, something has got to give. Earlier this week, the governor of the Bank of Canada finally said that corporate pricing must be normalized. Well, if he's saying that corporate pricing must be normalized, then it must be not normal right now. And, and, and that's why workers are so fed up. As I said, you go to the gas pumps, you're getting gouged. And why? It, it, it's because of corporate greed. As I said, workers in this country didn't cause inflation. We shouldn't have to pay for it. How many of your members would be deemed essential? What sort of roles would they have? Uh, the, the, those, those members would be, uh, you know, obviously essential. The, our firefighters at, uh, at the uh, national defense bases, 
those who uh, social income programs uh, to make sure that they are they're kept running. Basically, anything that's uh, you know a, a safety concern or a national security concern. Uh, those members would be identified as uh, as essential. There was some confusion in the stories yesterday and the day before surrounding three days' notice. My understanding is that you're governed by the Federal Public Sector Labor Relations Act, and that doesn't mean you owe any notice. Is that the fact? That, that's exactly correct, Patty. We, there, there was no notice. Uh, uh, you're, you're not obligated to give notice under the Federal Public Service Labor Relations and Employment Act. There's been some thought that maybe not an all-out walkout all at one time, but maybe some staged or targeted work-to-rule or rolling strikes. What do you foresee as being the starting point here, if indeed we see some job action taken? Well, we'll decide that in the in the coming days. We're currently at the bargaining table right now uh, with the government. Uh, we're scheduled to be here uh, until the end of today. Uh, we've been here all week. Uh, with them, we haven't seen a whole lot of progress, uh, and that window to get uh, a tentative agreement has closed very, very quickly. For some of the workers who have been at home, do you have to show up on the picket line to get strike pay? Yes, yes. There is no such thing as a virtual picket. Uh, in order to be considered participating in the, in the strike and to be on strike and to receive strike pay, you must physically show up to a picket line. Hypotheticals are not really my bag, but because we don't know how this uh, collective bargaining is going to go, and it may indeed be a walk away from the table one side or another, what are some of the departments that will see the largest impact? You know, because the, the residents, the citizens or taxpayers are wondering, if this job actually takes place, what am I going to see as a result? So can you point to a couple of areas where you think there's going to be significant impact? Well, number one, uh, you know, our 35,000 members at the uh, Canada Revenue Agency, uh, they're in a strike position as of today. So uh, certainly income tax uh, could be uh, impacted. If you're expecting a, a refund and you're hoping to get it in a timely fashion, I suggest you file your taxes if you haven't done so already. You file them today, uh, basically. Uh, other areas that may be affected, obviously, uh, you know, we're, you're going to see slowdowns uh, around transportation sectors, whether it be, you know, marine, air, uh, rail. Uh, there, there'll be slowdowns around there. Uh, there's pro- possible slowdowns at border crossings. Uh, certainly, it will impact their uh, imports and exports uh, as well. So, you know, Canadians will see uh, an impact uh, if we go on strike. And I want to make it very clear, our goal is not to go on strike. Our goal is to get a, a tentative agreement. Uh, so right now, we're, you know, as I said, we're at the table and we're hoping that the, uh, we're going to see something today that at least can lead us to, a, to agree, an agreement. I know many organized labor unions are not wanting to negotiate in public. I understand why. Can you give us an understanding about what the wage offer would be percentage wise from the government versus the request or demand that you're making? Well, I mean, right now their, their offer is 2.06 percent per year. Uh, and that that's simply uh, not going to do it. I mean, you know, and, and, you know, some of your listeners may, may say, well, why? You know, and it, it, you sound like you're just being greedy, asking for, you know, 4.5% per year. It, it, no, it's like, again, we're trying to keep up with, uh, with the rate of inflation. Uh, and, and hopefully the government recognizes this. The government of Canada being the largest employer in the country by far, they should be setting the example. They should be coming to the bargaining table and setting that bar for all workers uh, right across the country. Because when they, when the federal government depresses wages for their own employees, it affects every other employee right across the country. As I said, public sector or private sector, unionized or non-unionized. 
So the federal government needs to lead by example and come to the table and set that bar with a fair and decent wage increase that will set that bar for all workers across the country. Do you have a timeline in mind for when enough is enough, if there's not a collective bargaining agreement, that it's time to move on with potential job action? If we're not bargaining over the weekend, that's not going to be a good sign. Is a lever, or I guess in this case maybe it would be a hammer, available to the federal government to legislate people back to work? Look, this, this government has promised, uh, you know, through through uh, the, the, the federal minister of labor, Seamus O'Regan, has promised uh, anti-scab legislation uh, to, to be introduced this year, before the end of this year, So, which, which is great news. We welcome that news. So if you're going to do that and you come out with statements saying we believe in workers, uh, then hopefully they won't be so trigger-happy in, in, in any kind of back-to-work uh, legislation. Hopefully they, they'll come to the table either with a deal uh, that, you know, that we can sign off to avoid a strike, or if there is a, a strike, certainly uh, they, they, they'll come back to the table, as they said, with a fair and decent uh, wage offer and, and some decent working conditions. I appreciate the time this morning, Chris. Thank you. Pleasure, Patty. Thank you. Take good care. Bye-bye. That's Chris Aylward. He's the national president for PSAC, the Public Service Alliance of Canada. Final break of the morning and the week. When we come back, still time to squeeze in a couple of calls. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the uh, executive director at the Eating Disorders Foundation. That's Paul Toomey. Paul, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind today. Best kind now. Coming up on 12 o'clock Friday. <laughs> Yeah, anyway, I will not keep you long this morning. Uh, we're, uh, we haven't spoken in a little while, but we're, we're into, I guess, one of our major fundraising seasons, I'm going to have to call it, because over the next uh, two months, uh, we've got uh, three, four events actually happening where there's an opportunity for us to create some awareness about eating disorders and at the same time raise some money to support our programs and services. Um, I can start off with uh, Rogue's basketball game on April 26th. Uh, it's in support of uh, the foundation. Uh, we will be there. Uh, we'll have 50-50 tickets for sale, and we'll also be creating awareness through some conversations and that, and we, we thank the Rogue's for that. Uh, if anybody is interested, go to our website, and you'll get the link to buy tickets. You have to buy them through the promotional link uh, for us to... Uh, to benefit from it. So that's the first one. April 26th, Rogues Basketball. So the Rogues are actually giving you their nightly 50-50? No, no, no. We're, you have your we're own. going to be having a table with our own 50-50, okay. which is the second event that we have. Uh, we have a 50-50 sweep on, on the go right now that has a um, May the 15th draw date. And right now the take-home on it is over $700, and we've still got uh, a month to go. So we suspect that one's going to grow a little bit as well. Tickets on that, uh, call our office or, again, go to our website. That's the best thing, edfnl.ca, and that gives you information on all of the events and activities that we're carrying out. One of our longest uh, fundraising and awareness events is our walk, our Hope Always Walk, which will be on May 28th at uh, Monday Pond, early that uh, early on Sunday morning. So, again, we'd ask people to uh, reach out, uh, get some pledge sheets, come along and join us for, uh, for a stroll around Monday Pond. Which I've done in the past as uh, part of the eating disorder awareness campaign. So, I mean, I know you're not going back at the bingo. And that's unfortunate that it didn't go the way you would hoped it would. And I don't want to put you in a spot where it feels like there's grovel or something going on here, but, you know, how 
bad off has the fundraising efforts been because it's been so difficult out there for charities and for not-for-profits because money's tight and so some of these fundraising campaigns maybe not doing what they once did on, on an annual basis so where are we yeah uh, no, it's a, it's a good question, Patty, and and I, I certainly won't shy away from it. Uh, the past two years, uh, we have been fortunate to have received some additional year-end support from the provincial government, and I can tell you without that support, we would have been in a serious deficit position, and there would have been a lot of question whether we would have been able to keep our programs running and do anything other than create a little bit of awareness, even if we were able to do that. So we recognize that there's, um, uh, there are issues out there with fundraising, and, and we're trying to come up with events that give people an opportunity to get something back, i.e. our 50-50 sweep, uh, supporting us and attend a basketball game. And I, I hear it's great basketball. Uh, our Hope Always Walk has been a long-standing event that uh, we encourage people to come out with pledge sheets and that sort of thing, if you can. But we recognize that it's difficult for people. Our biggest fundraiser uh, that we are bringing back this year and haven't had since uh, prior to uh, to COVID is our Remembering Lana Curran Butterfly Gala, which is going to be on June the 9th. Now, that's probably one of our more prestigious events, and we are looking at selling tickets uh, at $175 each, but you're going to get a meal, an opportunity to participate in an auction, and you get to listen to the masterless men for 45 minutes at the end of, end of the evening, plus the fact we give you a $120 uh, a tax receipt uh, out of your 175 you pay. So uh, while it's uh, an expensive event, I admit that, it has the benefits for the individual who can afford to do it, or the corporate table. That's what we're looking at here, and we recognize that that's difficult. So we're saying to the companies that, yeah, if you bought a table before, but you can only buy half a table for this year, that's great, and we'll just try to increase the numbers we have. But the answer to your question is, yes, fundraising is a challenge. Fundraising is going to continue to be a challenge. I mean, when you take another 7.1 cents in gas yesterday, Where's that money coming from right. uh, for an individual, let alone trying to support the charities that uh, they know and love? Paul, are you back at Glendenning with the gala? Yeah, we are. Yeah, back at Glendenning, and it's uh, Friday, June the 9th. Uh, should be a great event. Like I said, Masterless Men are committed to playing with us. Uh, great dinner. Great, great auction, great bit of fun. Lot, there, there should be lots of uh, silent auction items that we're trying to focus on items that will be practical and useful for people. One, one of my folks said the other day, we should have just always been gift cards and 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 go there because that's the kind of stuff that people really want to see and need so mm-hmm. we're going to try to focus on that sort of thing with some live auction items for uh, some paintings and that for for those who who want to bid on them or, and are in the, in the collecting so again it's a great event we're delighted to have it back we're delighted the pyramid construction has come on board as the uh, presenting sponsor again and um, uh, it's going to be a great night yeah i mean you mentioned lana kerr and i ran into wilf uh, 
father at uh, a hockey tournament there last weekend. And, of course, Masterless Men, Wilf's in the band, front man is John, her uncle, and yep. Pyramid, of course, last time we went to that particular dinner, all of us at our table, we bought one of the auction items, and it was dinner at uh, Mike Sparrow's house, Pyramid Construction. So you did, yeah. absolutely. All yeah. ties in and together uh, nicely. There'll be a few more of those dinners, too, I hope. Yeah, there you go. I appreciate the time, Paul. Good luck with all of these. Thanks, Patty. Appreciate the opportunity to chat, and uh, look forward to doing it again soon. My pleasure. Looking Take forward to it. Take right. care. Bye. Bye-bye. It's Paul Toomey, the ED, the Executive Director at the Eating Disorder Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. We know times are tight and fundraising has become quite challenging, but if you have the opportunity to your, pick your favorite charity, whatever that may be, and I know it is tough times out there, but the need is real. We're actually going to try to schedule some time with the Community Sector Council next week, speaking of volunteerism and not-for-profits. There is a bit of a crisis across the country with uh, volunteerism and the need for more and more, so we'll maybe have that conversation early next week. All right, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program. All of the listeners, callers, emailers, tweeters, you're all right. We will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning, right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. Talk Monday. Bye-bye.